Thank you, Mr. Mayor, council members. It's good to see you. Uh, apparently, everyone here couldn't get reservations somewhere tonight, so <laughs> this is where we're supposed to be. It is a good thing to be a part of the city of Orange in my uh, role as a pastor down the street at Refuge Church, as well as the honor that I have to serve as a police chaplain with our Orange police men and women. And uh, with that, let me start our evening with some prayer. Lord, this room is filled with people that you love. This city is filled with people that you love. And the temptation when we come to meetings like this is to come with all of our own agendas. And I pray, God, that your peace and your presence would prevail. I pray for wisdom. Be with our mayor. Be with our entire council team. Be with our city staff. I pray for protection over our fire department. It's men and women who serve this city. The same for our police department, all those who are in places of service. But God, before us is an agenda because this city is made up of people. And again, we pray for your peace and your presence to be, be with us, to guide us well, not just for cooler heads to prevail, but for a sense of your wisdom moving forward, how this city can continue to be better for each of us because of the way you love us. We give this night to you, and it is in your name we pray. Amen. Place your, your hand over your heart and remember those that are serving overseas and domestically and protecting this great banner of freedom. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States. Thank you, Pastor, and, and happy Valentine's, everyone. Glad you could join us tonight. Keep us company. Okay, uh, roll call, please. Mayor Pro Tem Barrios. I'm here. Councilmember Dimitri. Present. Councilmember Tavalaris. Here. Councilmember Bilodeau. Present. Councilmember Gutierrez. Here. Councilmember Gillenhammer. Present. Mayor Slater. Present. So, um, City Attorney, is there anything to report out from closed session? There are no reportable actions from closed session. Okay, thank you very much. Are there any presentations or announcements? City Manager, anybody? No, All right, very good. Then uh, at this time, we will um, go to public comments. By the way, um, it says in the uh, beginning, but uh, if you do have a cell phone, I ask that you please remember to silence it so we're not interrupted during the, the meeting. Um, so at this time, there will be public comments. A public may address the council on matters not listed on the agenda within the subject matter jurisdiction of the city council. And we ask that public comments be limited to three minutes per speaker. I'll ask that you step up to the podium. I'll also announce the next person in line. If you could step forward to the front row so you could be ready, uh, that would be appreciated also. So our first speaker is Joel Robinson, followed by Kim Smith. Ready when you are. Oh. All right, I'm the resident naturalist here in the city of Orange, 
Dear Mayor and City Council, it is recommended that leaf blowers be banned in the City of Orange because of their significant negative impacts to humans and wildlife, including noise pollution, air pollution, wildlife habitat destruction, and decreased survival rate of trees and other types of vegetation. According to the general plan, the city will work to improve the quality of life for all residents by providing residential, commercial, industrial, and public uses that exist in harmony with the surrounding urban and natural environments. Therefore, it is imperative that the city take the necessary steps to address leaf blower issues, mitigate the current negative impacts, investigate the alternatives, and develop a plan for the implementation of solutions based on the comments I have outlined below. Number one, noise pollution. Chronic exposure to leaf blower noise pollution causes stress, anxiety, loss or distortion of hearing, irritability, frustration, anger, loss of sleep, mental illness, PTSD, mood swings, high blood pressure, disorientation, learning disabilities, and disruption of cognitive performance. Uh, the municipal code as it pertains to leaf blowers is not being enforced. The current decibel level threshold of leaf blowers is not measurable, so the municipal code must be changed so the threshold is lower, the decibel rating of the device is checked, and citations are given to the landscape contractor, equipment operator, and the property owner after one warning. Number two, air pollution. Chronic exposure to airborne particulates, dust, spores, and exhaust emissions increases the risk and exacerbates the symptoms of respiratory illnesses, including asthma, allergies, COVID-19, bronchitis, pneumonia, emphysema, and cancer. Exhaust emissions of gas-powered leaf blowers negatively impact the climate. Number three, wildlife habitat destruction. Removal of leaf litter, cuttings, and detritus prevents beneficial pollinators, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and mammals from obtaining food, nesting material, shelter, or reproductive opportunities. Number four, decreased survival rate for trees and other types of vegetation. Removal of leaf litter, cuttings, and detritus decreases valuable soil nutrients, water retention, beneficial fungi, and other microscopic soil organisms. It also um, increases erosion and desertification. Uh, back in uh, 1999, the Orange County Grand Jury Report on leaf blowers declared that leaf blower operations represent health hazards to the citizens of Orange County. Uh, and uh, number six, state law mandates that the sale of gas-powered landscape equipment is to be phased out by 2024. Cities that have already banned leaf blowers include Laguna Beach and Newport Beach, among many others. Um, if an outright ban is not immediately possible, a series of measures must be taken to mitigate the negative impacts of leaf blowers, including education program for residents and landscape contractors about the negative impacts of leaf blowers and other noisy polluting landscape equipment and the cost effective and environmentally friendly landscape management alternatives that are currently available, including leaving the leaves, uh, using brooms, rakes, and push lawn sweepers. And Joel, you're I'm sorry, your time is up. Do All you right. Have five more seconds, or can we have an agenda item for this next month? Uh, we might do that. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you very much, Joel. Next is Kim Smith, followed by Clarissa Serpis. Good evening, Mayor Slater and Council members. My name is Kim Smith, and I am a homeowner in Orange since 1992. I feel compelled to come up and speak in response to other opinions I have heard voiced at City Council about our environment and a green agenda. I do not believe we are in a climate crisis. I do believe in a conservative approach in caring for our environment and our natural resources. Of course, I care about the air and the water. I care about trees and animals, and I choose to conserve resources wherever I can. However, I believe in fiscal responsibility in government first. I ask that you, as our elected leaders, consider the cost, 
the functionality, and our current infrastructure when purchasing items for our city. Let's look at electric vehicles, which have been proposed um, as an example. So what is the cost of an electric vehicle versus a gas-powered vehicle? Are electric vehicles functional for the needs of the city? Do they run long enough in emergency situations? Does our current electrical grid support our current needs, and will it support an increase of usage in the future? So these are some questions to be considered before deciding one way or another. Second, I do not support hiring an environmental consultant. This is adding another layer of government with a specific agenda, and in my opinion, it is not necessary. Until we are able to have a well-reasoned, both sides represented discussion about this issue, I recommend the council take a conservative approach. In conclusion, please be responsible with the taxpayer dollars that we entrust to you. Please consider the opinions of all your constituents when making decisions for our lovely city and the purchases necessary to continue the city functions. Again, this is in response to opinions I have heard shared. I felt compelled to come up and share my opinion and be heard. Um, it's not in response to any opinions or decisions that you have personally made, just to let you know how your voting constituents, some of your voting constituents feel. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Kim. Clarissa Serpas. Next up is Jack Bradley. Good evening, Honorable Mayor, City Council. Uh, my name is Clarissa Serpas, Public Affairs Manager for SoCal Gas. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to say congratulations to the newly elected, the re-electeds, and really thank you all for your commitment to public service. So I'm here this evening to uh, provide an update on SoCal Gas's recent natural high bills that many of you have already probably received by now. Um, so I just wanted to give you guys an update on that. So we do not set the price for natural gas. Instead, these prices are determined by the national and regional markets. SoCal Gas buys those gas in those markets on behalf of residential and small business customers. And the cost of buying that gas is billed with no markup, meaning SoCal Gas does not profit from the movement of gas prices. But I do also have good news to share if you haven't heard by now or received on your bill. Uh, or an email, the California Public Utilities Commission, the CPUC, has accelerated its California climate credit for customers. So you will be receiving a credit of approximately $50 on your February or March bill. Now, we are also delaying collection activities on overdue residential accounts, and we will not discontinue overdue customers before July 1st. And we've also delayed non-residential disconnections until at least March 1st. We want to continue to inform and offer our customers several ways to help save on their bills. We do have forgiveness programs, our home improvement assistant programs, and our level pay programs. In addition, we recently donated $1 million to our gas assistance fund for low-income qualified customers to help pay their natural gas bill. And customers can visit SoCalGas.com forward slash assistance to get more information about that particular program. And lastly, we just encourage customers to con continue to conserve energy there's a few different things they can do to, do to do that. Lower their thermostat three to five degrees health permitting, wash clothes in cold water, reduce the temperature on their water heater to 120 degrees, and limit the use of non-essential natural gas appliances, such as fireplaces, spas, and pool heaters. For more information, customers can also visit SoCalGas.com and in the search field type in high bills and they can get more information on how to conserve. Now, if you are a member of your community, have any questions or concerns, I did give my business card to your city clerk, so feel free to reach out to me if you do have any other questions. 
Um, with that, happy Valentine's Day, and I do thank you guys for your time. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you very much. Next up is Jack Bradley, followed by Stephen Tyler. Hi, good evening. So uh, I'm going to talk today about um, Shen Yun. Uh, this is a, uh, so I'm a local resident and a volunteer, and I'm promoting Shen Yun. Uh, it's a world-class performing <coughs> arts uh, company that tours around the world every year, and it is coming to Orange County this month. So Shen Yun is a nonprofit based in New York, and uh, its mission is to revive the 5,000 years of traditional Chinese culture before communism almost destroyed uh, it during the China's Cultural Revolution in the 60s. So I'm a fan myself of this show. Uh, I go every year since 2016, and I take my family with me. Um, Shen Yun, it means in Chinese, the beauty of the divine beings dancing. And the show brings stories through classical Chinese dance, martial arts, and orchestra. Uh, my wife is Chinese and an art professor at Laguna College of Art and Design, and she is fascinated by Shen Yun's color palette and stunning visuals. Uh, but unfortunately, Shen Yun is banned in China uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Under the authoritarian communist regime, China's cultural and spiritual traditions were almost lost as the party tries to maintain its control over society through censorship, suppression of its own people. Uh, this is today's China. Uh, that's why this group of world-class dancers, musicians, and artists founded Shen Yun in the U.S. It's a free society, and uh, in 2006 is when it was founded. So Shen Yun travels uh, to about 150 cities around the world uh, with a brand new program each year, and it brings hope to people and uh, shows people the beauty of China. And I hope everyone in the community can go watch Shen Yun, and I truly believe that it can bring positivity to anyone who watches it. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak on this. And I'd um, like to leave these with the city clerk, if you would like. Great. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, next up, Stephen Tyler, followed by John Ellis. Good evening. This also relates to uh, leaf blowers. Um, my name is Steve Tyler. Uh, 20 years ago, my wife and I moved from Whittier to the city of Orange. Um, seeking for a cleaner lifestyle, hiking in the nearby hills, and so on. Um, Joel's, Joel has presented a very strong case regarding the blowers, um, something that I've been working on for the past 10 years, seeking a statewide ban as well. Um, three minutes isn't long to speak, so I'd like to read a few excerpts from letters that I've written in the past. This first one is to Orange County Parks department after a visit that I made to the um, Irvine Regional Park. Certainly not the first time, very early around 0800 on Saturday, November 21st, the crisp, clean air and chattering of birds was interrupted by the roar of the gas power, the gas powered leaf flower firing up. <clears throat> not only does this scare nearby birds away, but assaults the hearing from where I was on top of a ridge nearly half a mile away. The decibel level <coughs> of these machines is not far behind that of, of airplanes. Note, early mornings is when birds are feeding. Additionally, the dust and other contaminants being spewed into the air are most detrimental to public health, especially to those with respiratory problems and who often visit parks to cleanse their lungs of urban pollution. 
Norman Edelman, MD, Senior Scientific Advisor for the American Lung Association, stated, reducing particle pollution will prevent asthma and heart attacks and will keep children out of hospitals. Note, he says, will, not may. <clears throat> Some of you may have visited the Whitewater Preserve or other areas where leaves are allowed to decompose naturally instead of being blown away or picked up. I composed a document about lawns, <clears throat> the enormous amount of greenhouse gases produced by noisy gas power leaf blowers are a major, major environmental concern. These fuels and chemicals also carry significant health risks, adverse reproductive issues, damage to livers and kidneys, endocrine disruptors, and more. At the very least, and for the sake of their children, folks should insist gardeners use brooms. If they refuse, tell them to find another gardener, and they'll get a broom. The solution substitute with native plants. Once established, it will attract native honey and bumblebees, bluebirds, and hummingbirds. Plant native milkweed to attract critically endangered monarch butterflies, and plant only those uh, milkweed species that are native to our area, such as narrow leaf. Never buy the tropical varieties sold at Home Depot. Coastkeeper.org is an excellent local source for information, ideas, and assistance. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, thank you. Next up is John Ellis, followed by Doug Hamilton. Good evening. Uh, I would like to give a very short speech about the Orange City Council uh, regaining more local control of land zoning. Um, when Sacramento bypasses the council's local power to decide zoning issues, Sacramento is doing so because they feel that you don't exist. If the city council doesn't take steps to push back against being bypassed, that leads to apathy and an eventual non-existence of your functions. Uh, a recent example was someone representing San Francisco in Sacramento apparently repeatedly telling our former mayor, I don't care, about a local zoning issue. And suddenly, that incumbent mayor disappeared from this council, a very rare, almost unknown occurrence in Orange. The only way out of this dilemma is civil disobedience, not obeying Sacramento. What would you do if I came by your house and told you how to raise your children? Civil disobedience is the nonviolent refusal to obey destructive or disturbing influences, bad laws, or orders. If laws override local decisions towards some unknown, pretended, unattainable, wild-eyed, utopian goal, the result is a society turned to ribbons. San Francisco is obviously, for all the world to see, not in the habit of knowing how to lessen problems or manage neighborhoods. The time has come for us to practice civil disobedience to Sacramento, like the way we would against in-laws telling us how to operate our households. Thank you. Thank you, John. Doug Hamilton, uh, followed by Jeremy Livermore. Council members and honorable mayor, um, <clears throat> I came to talk to you guys about the story that was run in the Orange County Regis Register about a week ago. Um, <clears throat> I was quoted in there, unfortunately, and it was kind of uh, taken out of context. 
Um, the premise of the story was written as if uh, the author had written it in a way that he was accusing the city of having done something wrong with the housing element. And um, I spent my whole conversation with him talking about how the city complied. Uh, the city met government code by um, adopting a housing element a year ago. And the city had a, um, a letter from the community development <clears throat> department housing and community development department that had been issued that made a determination that the city's housing element was substantially compliant, which is what's required in government code. I then went on to point out to the author of the letter, or the, um, the register article, that there was a, a document prepared by the <coughs> Department of Community Development and Housing that clearly outlined what a builder's remedy was and how it took for the city to um, not be subject to a builder remedy application and also um, for the builders so they would understand what a proper procedure was for applying. Um, I was concerned in the conversation that I had with him because over and over during the conversation, he kept trying to allege that the city had done something wrong. I came back with argument time and time again, stating that um, from my careful review that there had been no issue at all. And I said that to him over and over. When we got done with the discussion, I said, you know, I think I'm gonna um, make sure you have the critical documents so that you can write the story appropriately and make sure you have all the information you need to do a good job. So I turned around and I e emailed him this email, which line by line went down with what the city's compliance was. I then sent him the, the letter that I spoke of that outlined the um, housing and community development determination that we were substantially compliant. And then I sent him the document from the Department of Community Development and Housing that clearly outlines the procedure for builder's remedy. So I just wanted you to know, I wanted to take an opportunity to set the record straight. And I wouldn't have been here tonight except I started getting phone calls from people that were concerned about that story. And I wanted to make sure you guys knew how the story got written. Good. Thank you, Doug. Thank you. Jeremy Livermore, followed by Alan Kincaid. Noise polluting leaf blowers is an issue that I am particularly passionate about. What has really frustrated me about buying a house here to raise a family is that I have come to realize that the protected legal right of quiet enjoyment of life and property is nearly impossible in the city of Orange's residential neighborhoods due to the almost constant noise created by hired landscaping crews high decibel commercial grade leaf blowers. It is nearly impossible to walk around outside for more than five minutes before these violate the peace and create extreme stress for any vulnerable bystander walking by them. When five feet away, one is exposed to 95 decibels. This is louder than a fruit blender right up to the ear. Interestingly, this out of control industrialization of our neighborhoods by often hostile and obstinate landscapers have occur has occurred despite the city's 30-year-old 1993 leaf blower municipal law. You may be wondering, if we have a law on leaf blower noise, why hasn't it been effective? 
Well, it is written in a way that creates an unenforceable situation for enforcement officers. I invite the City Council to read my written comments to see the absurdity of trying to enforce it. This unenforceability results in the reality that enforcement never happens. Despite 24 months of my repeated and ongoing phone calls and emails to the city's code enforcement department, and at times calls to managers such as Susan Galvin, an assistant to the city manager, Debbie, Debbie Gabler, absolutely no real enforcement has been done. Their excuses are, we cannot prioritize regulating this noise. We don't work Saturday and every other Friday, so we can't be there when those landscapers come. The previous code enforcement manager retired four years ago, and we haven't found a replacement. Until August of last year, the new code enforcement manager, Rafael Perez, current and ongoing excuse is that we bought such a high-tech high decibel meter in September that we don't know how to use it, and we just don't have any option uh, plans to learn how. So with these excuses over two years, it is clear that the city's code enforcement department with all due respect, is an embarrassment to us all. In my written comments, I have provided this council a detailed two-part solution to these problems of the law and the lack of enforcement. Very briefly, part one discusses three false small fixes to the 1993 law. Part two discusses proper ongoing enforcement of the code enforcement department. Please read my two-part solution and implement it as soon as possible. 30 years of disorder and no regulation on out-of-control noise is long enough. Thank you, Jeremy. Alan Kincaid, followed by James Kushan. Hi, good evening. Um, I've provided a handout. Uh, I'm not sure if all of you have seen the one I provided earlier. Uh, thank you for letting me speak tonight. My name is Alan Kincaid. I live at 419 South Tracy Lane in Orange in the neighborhood that is immediately adjacent to the proposed Cornerstone Park Cemetery at Palmyra and Yorba Streets, and I'm here to plead with you to oppose this project when it comes time to vote. I know this hasn't become an agenda item yet, but I want to educate everyone when the time comes. The proposed project is a 3,500-body cemetery on a former dump, essentially shoehorned into a sliver of land, crammed in between a small neighborhood, a child development center, a preschool, a dog park, <coughs> a recreational park on the Santiago Creek walking trail, and all traffic to and from the cemetery will pass through the adjacent neighborhood. As you can see from the red arrow on that map, all access to the site is through that small neighborhood. Um, I invite all of you to visit the site itself if you haven't, and ask yourselves, you know, would I want this cemetery 60 feet for, for my front door? You know, would anyone want this cemetery 60 feet from their front door? Um, is this residential park setting an appropriate location for a cemetery? In the past two years that concerned citizens have been speaking to this council, have you heard one resident stand up here at this podium and say, I really, really want this cemetery in my front yard? Probably not. Uh, so for the following reasons, I think this project should be opposed by the council. It has already been denied by the city's own design review committee for a lack of sensitivity to the surrounding community. They were concerned about the impact of a stark white cemetery and up to 13 foot tall concrete block walls in the middle of an established residential and recreational setting. Two, the Orange County Healthcare Agency, which are the last two pages of the handout. 
which is the local environmental enforcement agency on this project, has written three official letters of disapproval of the cemetery project based on environmental concerns and have stated the proposed use of the former Levita disposal site to a cemetery is characteristically incompatible with the criteria set forth in California Title 27 regulations. Uh, the majority of this property is zoned recreational open space and is designated open space, and the project is seeking a conditional use permit for cemetery use. The Orange General Plan states the intent for the open space park designation is to function as passive and active recreation, compatible with the adjacent <coughs> residential and institutional land uses. The cemetery project meets none of these criteria. It provides no recreational opportunities whatsoever to the community. It is a walled off, gated, private use facility preventing public access to the site, which is replacing a YMCA, BMX bike track, and a soccer field with a 3,500 body cemetery. Uh, please consider voting no on this project, and please consider acquiring this, acquiring this land for much, uted, much needed open space. Right, thank you. Thank you, Alan. <clears throat> and finally, James Kushan. Sorry, my apologies. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Madam Mayor Pro Tem, members of council, city staff, members of our fire and police, my fellow residents and our guests. I want to first of all thank you for allowing me to speak this evening. I am speaking on behalf of the Orange Dog Park Association as the association president. One to, uh, I was moved a little bit uh, by what uh, the chaplain said during the invocation. I wanted to share a brief uh, moment of why the dog park is so important to me. Um, dog park means commonality to me. And a, qu a quick example of that is after our recent series of atmospheric rivers and all the rain we had, the park was closed for a number of weeks. The first morning that it was open, I received an email from the head of maintenance for the city saying that it was open. Before I even said good morning to my dog, I sent a text message from one of the park regulars. You know, the chaplain spoke about how there are a lot of differences of opinions in this room and about us all coming together. The woman I sent a text message to wears her differences of her opinions on her hat and on her chest to what her differences of mine are. Had we met on the streets, I doubt she and I would even talk. Yet, she was the first person I sent a text message to to let her know the park was open. We talk sometimes 5, 10, 20 minutes, a half an hour when I see her at the park because we found commonality at that dog park. And that's why that park is so, so important to me. So I just wanted to give that little nugget. And I wanted to give a quick little update. We had a... Uh, I, um, as you all know, I send invitations out, and I want to thank every member of council that uh, responded with their kind words of encouragement. We had um, a little uh, event this weekend, and it was a limited success. We had a few restrictions that were placed on us, but uh, it was a success. We had a nice turnout. The community, the most important thing was the community had a blast. We had a nice, very nice turnout, and um, we had a round of five rounds of opportunity drawings. We had donations from national companies as well as local companies in the amount of $3,500 worth of products. And we had opportunity drawings every hour from 
from 10 o'clock till one. So people didn't have to camp out at the park. They could enter their opportunity drawing while they were playing with their, with their dogs at the park and they could win prizes, the same set of prizes each hour. And what I think it really did was it created a, um, a, a plan and a foundation for a future because more and more people, even Monday and Tuesday, today when I went to the park, hey, what's next? There's a lot of excitement. And I think that uh, we have a model for something to move forward to really engage the entirety of the dog park and Yorba as a whole. So thank you. Thank you very much, James. With that, we'll move on to the consent calendar. Sorry, I forgot. You good? All right. Can I ask a question? Uh, sure. Um, if I could ask a question of staff, um, I was really confused about why there were limitations placed on the Dog Park Association for marketing this event. And if there's some policy that exists or some type of written rule somewhere, can you send those to me? I would really like to understand this issue a little better. Thank you. Okay, now we'll move on to the consent calendar. Are there any items uh, that uh, council members would like to uh, discuss further or have questions about, or staff, perhaps? Uh, John, did you? No, yes. I 3.5. Mr. Dimitri? I need to uh, register an abstention on 3.11 due to a... Uh, an incredibly close uh, family member has made a claim. Or friendship of the family, I'm sorry. But I, I can't uh, vote on that. Okay. Um, anyone else? I would like to pull items uh, 3.6 and 3.7 just for a couple quick comments. Uh, I will call for a uh, motion to approve the balance. We have a motion and a second. Any other discussion? All those in favor? Well, <laughs> used to public. Okay, <laughs> please vote. <clears throat> Takes a while. That is unanimous. Uh, Mr. Gillenhammer, item 3.5. Thank you, Mayor. Um, quick question, Tom, for the city. Um, what is currently still in paper form, and then how do we get a trusted system that will allow us to become completely paperless? Yes, sir. Well, I'll have uh, our IT manager, Stephen Scardina, come up to speak about the, um, the IT component of that, and I'll defer to the city clerk, who is the custodian of records for the city. Good evening, Mayor and Council. Um, <clears throat> so as far as going paperless, completely paperless from a record standpoint, um, we would have to have a trusted system in place in order to not have paper format anymore, um, meaning in order to be compliant with the state law, they require um, a certain trusted system, which I'm sure IT could speak to. But before that, we cannot destroy any paper records um, until that system is in place. So for now, our retention includes all paper records. So even if we have, like, we have a, an electronic contract signing um, software, we still have to print that contract at the end of the process in order to be compliant with state law. 
So for trusted systems, uh, the reason we are not currently compliant with the trusted system is you are required to keep two separate copies that are uh, unalterable, and one of those copies needs to be maintained off-site. Uh, currently, we maintain everything on-site with the exception of backups. So what we're missing to be a truly trusted system is a secondary storage uh, that provides an unalterable copy of the electronic document. Thank you. Uh, Tom, I'd love to see what it would take to get to that for the city uh, so we can fully digitize um, all of what we're currently in paper form. Could you take that back to see um, what's possible? Yes, sir. From a cost perspective, just to be correct. Correct. Yes, Got please. It. Um, Mr. Mayor, I'm good to motion moving forward with the item as is. Okay, please do so. A motion and a second. Please vote. Approved unanimously. So the only reason I wanted to pull item 3.6 um, is because this is, has to do with the Orange International Street Fair. I'm going to keep hammering away that I think the street fair should be moved to another weekend, either in the fall or the spring, when it's not so darn hot. <coughs> so with that, I appreciate, I did speak to the chairman of the Street Fair Committee today. They really did take a hard look at this, and for various reasons, the committee felt that they should still keep the event on Labor Day weekend. Uh, he gave many good reasons, but uh, yet I still feel um, that it should be moved. And I'm just going to say that uh, I hope for a very mild Labor Day weekend this year. And uh, we will have it on Labor Day weekend again. And uh, with that, uh, I will go ahead and move approval of this item 3.6. have a motion and a second. Please vote. Unanimous. And then uh, simply on item 3.7, and I meant to ask staff this before the meeting, um, this has to do with um, <clears throat> our uh, recycling program at curbside. I just uh, always have the question, I'm fortunately until we get uh, code enforcement uh, uh, more geared up, we have a lot of scavengers going through our trash cans, uh, looking, pull, pulling out all the recyclables that I'm pretty sure the city gets money for. Um, is that true? And then also, is there maybe in the future when we can have the staff to police that a little better, a way to, um, to stop that or at least impede it somewhat? I'll take the first shot for personal experience in my neighborhood. All right. That's absolutely correct. Uh, we have individuals that will come by, uh, particularly the recyclable, recyclable bin and take uh, bottles. And obviously, anything that's recyclable to, you know, obviously provide some income. Um, we have gone back and forth that technically it is a crime. Um, you're stealing from once the person puts the, puts the trash cans out to the curb, it then technically becomes property of the city. So in essence, I believe you're stealing from the city, um, which I'm correct. So, uh, yes, um, I, I think, again, um, once, you know, we keep talking about getting code enforcement up, up and running, and that's correct. And I, I think from, from my standpoint, um, 
you know, we're, we're going to do our best when we get them up and running. But have you heard multiple people talk through the audience tonight? We keep talking about code enforcement. We could probably have 300 code enforcement people, and, and we, we're still not going to be able to deal with every single problem. But obviously, um, trash day um, for my, today's my day, um, and then obviously throughout the city. But um, that is income for the city, and uh, that will be something that we'll be looking at, sir. Okay. Was, did you, Mr. Cash, did you uh, Yeah, just a, maybe a, I'm sorry, I didn't see you there. Just maybe a quick little. Um, so the, the, the income for recyclables actually is something that's collected by our trash hauler, CRNR, and, and it plays into the economic model that they look at in terms of how they establish our trash rates. So they, there, there is some assumptions in there that they are getting some profit, although the profit for recyclables in the last few years has dropped way off. Um, but that, they actually take the proceeds of that, and that, again, plays into the economic model that goes into our trash rates. Okay. Well, thank you. I, again, just wanted to bring that up mainly to point out that uh, these scavengers are stealing, and um, anything we can do to discourage it would be, would be good. So with that, I will uh, go ahead and uh, move item 3.7. We have a motion and a second. Please vote. And that's unanimous. Okay, that's the end of the consent calendar. We move to uh, reports from Mayor Slater. And uh, I wanted to mention that um, the Southern California Association of Governments is having their regional conference and general assembly in the spring. And... Um, I'm proposing to designate Councilmember John Dimitru as the delegate that we'll send there, with Dennis Bilodeau as being the alternate. And I don't think we need any further discussion on that, unless anyone has any comments. Seeing none, I'll, we have a motion and a second. Please vote. Very good. Oh, it's unanimous. So... Item 4.2, um, I proposed uh, at the beginning of my term to create three committees, and at the first council meeting we did one, and that's a homeless outreach program, because that is one of the major issues facing our city. But there's two other committees I wanted to create, and so uh, I hope to do that tonight. So the first one is the creation of a San Diego Creek Grand Central Park Preservation and Protection City Council Committee, and that certainly can be changed or shortened by the committee itself, but it's just something that I um, came up with. Um, I'd like to uh, open this, uh, first of all. Council Member Gutierrez has uh, asked uh, some of our uh, citizens to prepare a very nice uh, video that uh, shows this creek as it runs through the city of Orange. It's about six minutes long, but I think you'll enjoy it. Um, it was uh, created by David Hillman, and the, um, the drone pilot and drone operator was uh, Jim Phillip, and we really appreciate you doing that. Anna, would you like to say something about it? Certainly, yes. Um, as you know, the creek is very near and dear to my heart, runs a lot through my district, so um, these fantastic residents um, 
love taking videos and talk to me about the creek all the time. So I asked them, would you mind making a video of the creek? And they said, well, what do you want it from? I said, from its start to a run through our whole city. So that's exactly what they did. And so thank you very much to David Hillman and Jim Phillips. Um, for doing this for us, and so I'm very happy to show you their fantastic, it's like soaring through the city of Orange. <laughs> the city of Orange, February 2023. Below is the parking lot at Hart Park, which is part of Santiago Creek. The Cambridge Street Bridge with the 22 freeway on the right. Hughes Street is on the right of the basin, along with the continuation of the bike trail. Villa Park Road and the Smith Basin.
the waterfall on the Hurwitz site. The Sewing Miller Property. The creek goes between Mayberry Ranch on the left and Orange Park Acres on the right. Santiago Oaks Regional Park. Coming up to the Villa Park Dam. On the back side of the dam, this willow forest is the largest riparian forest in Orange County. <coughs> Irvine Regional Park. Horse stables in Irvine Park. And this last scene is the back side of Irvine Park. What a difference a little bit of rain makes. <clears throat> so we have this amazing asset running through the city of Orange, and I think it's high time that we paid attention to it, um, recognize it for, for what it is, improve on it, and make it the best it can possibly be uh, as a recreational space for the citizens of Orange. And... Um, <clears throat> uh, I'd like to propose that we uh, create a council committee uh, with council members uh, John Gillenhammer and uh, 
Ana Gutierrez serving on that committee because this creek primarily runs through their two districts and they've expressed an interest in being on this committee, which I appreciate. And part of what they'll be tasked with doing is uh, when opportunities come along to acquire adjoining sites to the creek, that uh, we do all we can to see if we can uh, acquire those sites and, and make the Greenway an even better asset to the city of Orange along with finding other ways to, um, for recreation and, and whatever we can do to, uh, again, make this uh, a true treasure in orange that it is. Um, so with that, I will, uh, well, first of all, do we, John Dimitri would like to say something. <laughs> Thanks, Mayor. Um, one of the concerns I would have, um, just anecdotally right off the top, is are you going to reach out to any of the other stakeholders that are involved with the creek? Um, there's a number of other agencies, such as Orange County Flood Control. Kinder Morgan has a uh, right-of-way with a, a fuel line. Um, I believe the rail system still has some potential right-of-ways, uh, property owners that may potentially be impacted. And then, of course, um, any type of uh, long-term preservation issues that you're looking at or land acquisitions um, is how are we going to find money or budget that, um, if that's going to be uh, part of that? If, if so, is there a financial plan ahead of time, or, uh, or is that something to be looked at later? Um, with that, um, will there be, if there is a desire of uh, this subcommittee um, to start pushing forward with land acquisition, will that be through, uh, uh, will that through, be through condemnation, or will that be through action of, uh, you know, purchasing property as it becomes available, setting long-term standards? Is there any kind of formation or foundation on what is going to occur on this wide strip of uh, land? In addition, I assume uh, we saw a video that goes well past the uh, City of Orange boundaries, so I'm assuming we're going to stick within the City of Orange as well. And we're not going to extend past um, our actual jurisdiction. So you bring up a lot of valid points and anybody that has any relevance, water boards, uh, um, gas uh, utility lines, uh, sure all of those need to be included. And then the committee can also look at uh, reaching out to whomever might be, whatever sources we can uh, use for grants, monies, <laughs> that would be certainly my preference to acquire additional sites and not uh, burden the taxpayers uh, uh, where it's not necessary. So, And then, um, although the committee's jurisdiction would only be within Orange, I would expect that they would work with the cities of Santa Ana and also the county to, um, uh, again, it's the creek runs through all those areas, so we need to uh, be in touch with them as well. Good points. Anyone else? And I don't see that we have any speakers on this matter, correct? Nope. Then I would entertain a, a motion to establish this committee. I have a motion by Mayor Pro Tem Barrios, looking for a second. Seconded by, what? Okay, wait. <laughs> All right, motion is second. Please vote. 
Unanimous, thank you very much. This is a win for Orange. <clears throat> Next item, 4.3, I'm proposing a, again, I was, the committee reserves naming rights, but uh, more of a clean Orange committee. And what I see this uh, committee being responsible for is um, code enforcement, um, which can use improvement. Uh, code enforcement dealing with illegal street vendors, uh, illegal signage, uh, Chapman University students that are creating problems in neighborhoods, all of those things that are, are um, compromising the quality of life in Orange. And I am proposing that uh, we have um, Mayor Pro Tem Barrios and Council Member uh, Tavaleras uh, serve on that committee because they, I think, are gung-ho to uh, tackle these issues. And um, that is what that committee will be all about. Uh, any other council discussion or comments? No speakers, then I would look for a motion to approve. Thank you, Council Member Gutierrez, second Council Member Gillenhammer. Any other discussion? If not, please vote. You guys are great. Thank you very, very much. So uh, last month, we created a homeless outreach uh, task force, um, consists of council members uh, Dimitru and uh, Bilodeau. And uh, we have met. Some of the things that uh, we have accomplished are, there's a group that was established in Orange of uh, faith-based and nonprofits that um, wanted to meet and tackle homelessness. And they've been meeting since 2012. I met with that group. Um, they serve a lot of homeless uh, outreach needs in Orange, and they're gung-ho to help us as well, including, I see a, a nod from our police officer, our heart team attends that uh, group as well. Um, yesterday, Congresswoman Kim met with myself and uh, several staff members, including our city manager and his staff, at our homeless uh, outreach that we have currently on Struck that replaced Mary's Kitchen. And she is very excited and willing to help the city of Orange out. And we are going to uh, take her up on that. We're going to schedule a meeting with Congressman Lou Correa to do the same thing. Um, we're setting up a meeting. Uh, so the city of Tustin has established a quite admirable uh, temporary shelter, and we're setting up a tour of that for all of us, including the city manager. And then <clears throat> finally, the goal of this committee, we have done a good job with the homeless in Orange because we have so many citizens that want to step up and get involved. But the one missing element, and that's the purpose of this committee, is to establish a temporary shelter, which we do not have. And currently, if we have anyone that wants to go to a temporary shelter, first we have to see if there's even a bed available in either Buena Park or Placentia. And on the rare occasion there is, then we have to schlep that person all the way to Placentia or Buena Park. And so... <clears throat> Would we rather have these folks on our streets or would we rather have them in a shelter? And, and uh, it's our goal to um, find a, a place where we can have a shelter. So we're looking at vacant land. 
where we can <clears throat> move on portables or possibly a um, commercial building or industrial building, preferably, uh, that's available for sale. And ho hopefully we can find money through uh, <clears throat> some of our helpful county congress people or county supervisors to uh, help fund this. So that's what we're working on, and we're serious about this. And if you'd like to help or have any ideas, we're, we're definitely open to to, um, <clears throat> to those. So with that, I just wanted to report back on that. And um, are there any other reports from council members? I know there's at least... Uh, uh, yes, sir. Uh, both uh, Councilmember Billado and myself would also like to oh, speak yes, on okay. the uh, homeless outreach. Okay, um, Mr. Billado. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Also wanted to mention that we do have a uh, tour scheduled for Orange County Supervisor Sarmiento yes. of our hub, and because uh, we'll be uh, looking upon him potentially for some funding opportunities. Yeah. Good. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you for reminding me of that. And Mayor, thank you. Um, with our uh, recent talk, uh, I resubmitted to our city attorney's office an ordinance um, dealing with uh, encampments uh, and uh, loitering near schools, playgrounds, and city facilities. It's with the city attorney's office for review. I brought this to the council, actually to the city attorney's office back in, I believe, September or October, probably wrong, but somewhere around there. But uh, uh, our, our Madam City Attorney has it, and it is in review process now, and hopefully will be to Council for uh, adoption and ratification in uh, March or April. If it, if it uh, I would say end of April, definitely not March, because that would be <laughs> okay. our next meeting. Well, there we go. Okay. Good. Great. Thank you, uh, Councilmember Dimitri, for bringing that up as well. Okay, um, reports from council members. Uh, anything that uh, I'm not aware of? What did you want to vote on? Oh, it's just a report. Okay. <clears throat> um, we'll move to 5.1. We're going to highlight a couple of local businesses. Um, who would like to go first? <laughs> oh, okay. Mike. Council Member Gutierrez. Thank you, Mayor. So this month, I'm highlighting a business in my district. I'm very proud to say that this business has been there, oh my goodness, um, at least 28 years. That's the first time I frequented them. Um, and they've been there ever since, and I believe they've been there even before that. So if you go to the next slide, I want to highlight Dr. Ronald L. Hankins. He is a fantastic optometrist. He um, is located at 4703 Chapman Avenue, right behind La Carreta, formerly Vons. And um, he was the first person that told me I needed glasses uh, back <laughs> 28 years ago. And I have been seeing him ever since. And this is his location. He has not left our community. I'm so proud of him being there. And so the next slide, let's meet Dr. Hankins. There he is. He is the most personal person uh, that you could ever meet. Um, fantastic uh, relationship building. He takes his time with you. He 
wants to know about your family, how you're doing, besides obviously checking your eyes um, and taking care of you. So he and his staff, very warm, very welcoming. They take your time with you. Me, who's very indecisive about picking out frames, I, I'm there for two hours picking out frames, and they, they are, tolerate me completely. So I'm very uh, thankful for him and thankful that he has remained in our, our city there in District 5 for at least 28 years and before then as well. So if you go to the next slide, um, obviously all kinds of specialties, um, advanced eye testing, that's my favorite, the one of your pupil where you can see your optic nerve, and <laughs> contact lenses, prescription glasses, uh, medical eye examinations for glaucoma management. Um, he did such a great job with my mom helping her out as well. So I just could not be prouder to highlight him and his business. And he has fantastic staff too. So um, last slide is just a reminder where he's located. They're off 4703 East Chapman. So if any optometry <coughs> needs, come on up to up Chapman Avenue and meet Dr. Hankins. Thank you. He's your doctor. See, isn't he great? Yes. Quite a testimony. <clears throat> Thank you, Councilmember Gutierrez. All right. Um, item 5.2, Councilmember Billado has an item. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, this is an item, actually, that I've been working uh, with Councilwoman Tavalaris on with her for over a year. Uh, there's a parcel that's located adjacent to Olive Park. It's a shuttered... Uh, child care nursery. Um, Olive Park has a major parking deficiency on Saturday mornings when the Little <coughs> League uh, is in process and uh, people are forced to park uh, all the way on Glacelle Street northbound and into the neighborhoods. And um, this parcel um, currently has a chain link fence around it. Uh, uh, it was up for sale about 18 months ago. Uh, Councilwoman Tavalaris brought it to the attention of staff. Uh, unfortunately, it was deemed at that time that the price was a little excessive. Um, I recently reached out to the um, owner of the property. He's in the process of, of uh, slowly uh, rehabilitating it, but uh, he said he would be open to offers. Um, I think it would be fantastic if we could, uh, it would double the size of the parking lot of the park and alleviate the parking problems. Um, in order to introduce this concept. The government code requires me to bring this to an open session and ask my colleagues to designate a negotiator, which in this case would be the city manager or his designee, and then authorize him to commission an appraisal of the property. And after that time, he would bring it back to us in closed session, and we would mull things over and figure out how we would pay for such a purchase, uh, because we don't have money budgeted for this. So um, that is my proposal. And I'd like to put a motion on the floor that we designate the city manager as our negotiator or as designee, and that we authorize him to take the necessary steps, including commissioning an appraisal, to bring that back to city council in closed session. And uh, Madam City Attorney, is there anything I've missed? A second. <laughs> ah, okay, well, there you go. No, that, that, okay, that, well, that's absolutely That's my right. motion. No, that, that's I, I've, I've covered the elements required in the government code. May I ask a clarifying question? Thank oh, you. Absolutely. So we have a motion and a second, and uh, now we'll have discussion. Um, Council Mayor Dimitri, did you said you had? Oh, absolutely. So okay. <laughs> I'll get to you next. So while I uh, commend uh, Mr. Billado, Council Member Billado for finding some land uh, to expand a current existing park that's in within uh, a half mile of another park, uh, which is the Ambrose Park, a mile of uh, 
Eisenhower, a beautiful park, and a mile south of that is Schaefer Park. I will remind our folks, our residents, that West Orange is, had not had an enhancement or an amenity of, from the city since 1974. So 47 years uh, were going on without a, a change. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you go west of Flower in uh, the city of Orange, the only recreational facility that's there is open to the prisoners at Theo Lacey Jail. So quite honestly, while uh, congratulations on, on wanting to do this, the park acquisition money uh, and, and availability of funds um, for parks and acquisition is incredibly limited. So while it, it would be great to uh, fix the parking at Olive, I see a greater need for kids uh, in the West End that while most of Orange uh, kids get to play on grass, mine play on pavement. Uh, so when they fall, they, they get scrapes, and it would be nice to have some open space and a little green area for them, uh, especially for our blue-collar folks that are in my, uh, my district specific. Uh, the park that uh, I have proposed and brought forward, we're going into year three um, with uh, semi-trucks still parked on it, with people still dumping oil in the middle of the night and doing their thing out there uh, in the uh, beds of the trucks. Uh, with a homeless encampment next to the freeway under a pepper tree, um, and then uh, miscellaneous activities uh, across the evening with illegal dumpings. So I'd really like to get control of this property from the county, which I believe we're real close to having a lease, which would be significantly cheaper uh, than $1.8 million, which is being asked for for the property uh, next to Olive, and that's before you have to scrape it, worry about the mitigation of asbestos that's in the building, uh, due to the age of the building. Uh, so while I congratulate you, I'm not going to support it. Uh, I just can't uh, until we look at other areas. And, you know, the, the, the question will come up as a, a friend of mine called today to say, I know you're going to oppose it, but you can't hold every project hostage for a park. Well, I'm not. I'm, I'm spending money on other parks to improve. We just did that with uh, El Medina Park with the tot lots uh, or, uh, in the rubberization of the, the fields. It's just uh, when we come to an expansion of a park or, a, um, uh, or acquisition to, uh, or for a new park, it really, we need to concentrate on an area that's been historically neglected by this city, which would be West Orange, uh, the only park west of the railroad tracks, south of Lincoln in West Orange. Uh, a tremendous amount of land is El Camino, and again, I, I said this before, I was six years old when that park was opened. I'm not that anymore. I'm a lot older, and, and, uh, and the folks out there deserve at least something. We have no library. We have no resource center. We don't have gymnasiums. We have one park. So uh, before we start spending money on an additional area, um, I would like to see that we actually concentrate our efforts and our grants and any ability we have to supporting the folks that are on the west side. Thank you. I think you're doing a great job of representing West Orange, John. <clears throat> um, Councilmember Gutierrez was next, and then, uh, and then Councilmember Gillen Hammer. Thank you, Mayor. I, I just had a clarifying question and was wondering, Councilmember Abilidu, why this couldn't be brought up during our budgeting for CIP, because I believe that's how the park over in West Orange is being brought up over with our CIP uh, as well. Why could we not do it then? or add it to that plan? Well, I, th I think that's actually how the process will work. 
Uh, first, we have to determine if um, we could come to a price that would even be acceptable to the property owner. I'm not interested in eminent domaining uh, this person's property. First, we have to see if we have a willing seller. And then if we do, then at that point, we can identify mm -hmm. where the funds would come from. Um, I have alerted our, uh, we have a contractor on board that seeks grant funding for us. I have alerted him uh, that there may be a possibility out there to purchase some park space. And I have spoken with him about council <coughs> and Dimitru's proposed park as well. And I know he's out searching for money for that as well. Um, and there's actually probably more opportunity uh, in grant funding available because his proposed park is adjacent to the Santa Ana River and there's a Santa Ana River Conservancy which has the ability to get funding. Um, so it will go through that process. Uh, I don't think uh, we have this kind of money just sitting under the couch cushions um, because it will be a, a low seven-figure transaction. But um, the first step, though, is we have to figure out what it's worth and see if we have a willing seller. Okay, Council Member Gillenhammer. Council Member Billado answered my question. Thank you. Okay. Anyone else? I'll, I'll just say, John, you make um, excellent points, and we've got to get that park opened in uh, in West Orange. But uh, for this matter, or for this purpose, we're merely uh, exploring further what um, this. Uh, uh, site possibly could be acquired for, and then we can certainly make a decision uh, later. Um, we have a motion by uh, Councilmember Bilodeau, a second by Councilmember Tavaleras. Any further discussion? I'll ask for the vote. <clears throat> That's uh, six uh, yes and one no. <clears throat> Mayor, can I bring one item up? Yes, you may. Sorry, I know this isn't agendized. I had to uh, check with the family before I brought this forward. Um, recently, we lost a, a pillar of our community, a gentleman that uh, served on our school board, the city council, uh, the board of supervisors, and uh, was just an amazing humanitarian uh, and philanthropist. Um, and we had his uh, funeral um, back on uh, January 13th, which uh, uh, to say it was, uh, it was humbling to be in that room is, is an understatement. But with that, um, he's one of the founders of uh, the Orangewood Home, uh, which if you're not familiar, uh, takes uh, children that have been abused or abandoned and houses them and, and cares for them. Uh, and something I felt would uh, be an incredible memorial because all too often, while a lot of us in this room uh, on this dais uh, know Bill Steiner personally, or uh, knew him uh, personally. Um, as our generations um, pass on, that memory will be forgotten, and he'll be forgotten. And it's important that uh, we memorialize things like that. So I went over and started thinking about how, 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 what can we do to honor this man? Uh, and so there's a road that comes off of City Drive, and it will be something that I'd like staff to start working on and then bring back a, a, a resolution or ordinance on however we name roads. But there's a road called Justice Center Way that leads off of City Drive directly into the Orangewood home. And I think it would be very fitting uh, in, a, in a great memorial if we turn that road into uh, 
uh, either William Steiner Way, Bill Steiner Road, however we want to name it, but make sure we honor the man. Um, I think the county will be more than willing to work with us on that. Uh, I think uh, our uh, District 2 supervisor with the county, um, Supervisor Sarmiento, would be in favor of this. Uh, and there's only one other address on, on the street that would, uh, on Justice Center Way, that would need to, to uh, be massaged. And I'm sure that uh, all things coming and going, but we can get this done. And I think it would be uh, something that we could all take great pride in as we drive down City Drive, uh, going to the block, because that's where you should shop, um, <laughs> is that we will we'll see, the, see Steiner, and we'll always remember that uh, Bill Steiner uh, dedicated his life to the children of Orange. Thank you. Thank you, John. Would you like just to ask the city manager if you could ask staff to bring us a report back? Yeah, I think I did. Oh, I worked it? it in there. That did you miss that? <laughs> Except that assignment and a prior one on Councilman uh, Billado's rec uh, request. Okay. Very good. Thank you, John. Okay. Um, I'm six point one. Uh, Presentation of local appointments list of all cities, boards, commissions, and committees. So just to uh, reiterate, this is, uh, for the most part, an extension of um, terms that are expiring in June. And um, then also I want to ask, uh, is Melissa or Elaine uh, here? I don't see them. Okay. Um, because there are two vacancies on the CDBG committee. Um, I interviewed Melissa McHale and Elaine Muselli. Both of them would be outstanding members of the CDBG committee. And uh, that way we at least bring the committee up to five so that we, uh, as, as you know, we're beginning the CDBG process and they're holding their first meeting on February 21st. Um, and then uh, lastly, Adam Feliz, who's on the Traffic Commission, was left off of, uh, by mistake as his term is expiring in June of this year. And so I want to add his name as a four-year extension expiring on uh, June 30th of 27. And that is all I have to say about that, unless uh, any council members have any other questions or or. Uh, comments about it uh, otherwise okay we have a motion and a second thank you very much a any other comments hearing none please vote unanimous thank you very much I am 6.2 adoption of resolution 1142 setting the membership number qualifications and related information for city boards Committees and commissions. So basically, um, what this does is expand um, all the boards and committees from five to seven. We could not uh, fill any of those additional spots tonight as they have to be noticed um, by the city clerk, which she will do. And uh, I've spoken with all of you, as you know, and um, I think we filled out all these committees um, to seven. And I'm looking forward to making a lot of additional appointments. Um, at our next meeting in March that I think will serve our city very, very well. And then I also wanted to uh, mention that um, on the uh, description of our um, 
of these committees and commissions. Um, it was mentioned that on our traffic commission, we've traditionally had a member appointed by the Orange Unified School District, but we haven't been doing that for a number of years, uh, I hear. So um, I'm suggesting that we remove that requirement and uh, just keep things appointed uh, by our, our own city. And I think, uh, city clerks, there are any other comments I need to make? No, Mayor, I think you covered that. Okay. I think you covered everything. Mayor, uh, just one more, that uh, to remove the traffic, excuse me, the school board representative right. from the traffic commission, you would be directing us to come back with an ordinance since it is actually in our ordinance. So we'll come back with that. Okay, very good. And, um, and then I'll also just to comment that the library board is uh, governed by um, the state. Uh, what committee is that? Education code. Thank you. So uh, the library board will remain at five members uh, as the state uh, requires. We have a motion and a second. Is there any further discussion? A question? Yes, Councilmember Gutierrez. Thank you, Mayor. And I think you already answered what I was questioning if the fact that we wanted to clean up the traffic um, commission with the school representative, I noticed that on exhibit A for qualifications that was still noted. So we're gonna clean that up as well, exhibit A and the OMC. That, that is correct, we have a revised resolution. Thank you, that's all I needed to clarify. Okay, um, motion and a second, please vote. That is unanimous. Okay, item 6.3 um, is to accept the resignation of Jonathan Trapezonian from the Planning Commission. Jonathan has uh, served the commission well, but I understand that he is um, relocating out of the city of Orange, and therefore he did submit a um, letter of resignation. We appreciate his service. Um, we have a motion and a second to accept his resignation. Any further discussion? Seeing John? Yeah, I just want to say thank you to Jonathan. I've had a chance to get to know him over the summer. He's put a lot of time and effort into this role and just wanted to say thank you for his service. Good. Thank you very much. Anyone else? Please vote. Unanimous. So item 6.4, um, unfortunately, there was one commission committee that already had seven members. And in order to uh, accommodate the council's um, nominations, uh, we need to remove two members. Um, that would be Mike Rouse and Chrissy Vaughn. Chrissy Vaughn, um, they both understand and, and uh, we thank them for their service. And, and furthermore, Chrissy Vaughn says she would love to serve on the CDBG committee. So next month, um, I will submit her name uh, to add her to the CDBG committee and, and uh, hopefully we'll look forward to her service as well. We have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? Seeing none, please vote. And that concludes our committees and commissions. Now for administrative reports. Um, City Attorney Mary Benning. Well, I, I won't be speaking on this. Oh. 
We have uh, Human Resource Director Monica Espinosa here if there's any questions or comments from the council that she needs to answer. <laughs> Much better idea. Good evening, Honorable Mayor, members of the City Council. Uh, our employment agreement this evening is for Mary Binning to serve as a city attorney. Ms. Binning was hired in March of 1998, and she has served as assistant city attorney uh, through December of 2020 and was rehired with the city as a senior assistant city attorney in March of 2019. Ms. Binning offers nearly 30 years of municipal and private law experience. Her contract is attached for um, uh, trans uh, transparency purposes and all applicable rules and regulations for executive directors within resolution 11410 um, govern all other benefits or terms of employment. This concludes my brief presentation. Thank you, Monica. Uh, anyone else have any questions or comments? Seeing none, we have a motion and a second. I'll, uh, please vote. That's unanimous. Now you're stuck. Now would you like to say anything, Mary? Uh, it makes me very proud to be here. It really does. Thank you. Thank you. We're looking forward to your service. Thank we appreciate you. it. Okay, uh, moving on to item 7.2, follow-up report on health care and retirement benefit options for elected city council members. So let me just uh, make a couple opening comments. I, I think we've kind of talked this through uh, quite a bit. Uh, this is a second go at it. So I'm going to throw a motion on the on the table, and, and we'll see if it flies. Um, I'm going to um, suggest that uh, move that uh, council members have the option of choosing among the plans for single payer um, health benefits um, that were presented to us and that you uh, hopefully have seen. I think the top. Uh, plan is uh, $1,012 a month, and then you also would still have the option of choosing um, dental or eye, and that would still be below what we pay our average our employees uh, for benefits or offer our average employees for benefits. Um, so you would have your choice. As far as the retirement plan, as we know, um, we are somewhat limited in that, but this, it is required that we offer a retirement plan. So the choices are um, that we go with the PERS plan, uh, which is offered to our full-time employees, or we go with the, the uh, part-time employee offering, which is the Empower plan. So I basically think that um, we are part-time employees as city council members, although it often feels like we are full-time. I think we need to set an example for our city and for our staff and that we should offer us the same benefits that we offer our part-time employees, and that would then therefore be the Empower plan. And so that is my motion that um, you will have a choice of single-payer health plans that are offered to our uh, employees as well as uh, then you'll all be also be offered the Empower Plan, the same as is offered our, our part-time employees. I will make that motion. 
Thank you, uh, Councilmember Dimitri. We have a motion and a second. Uh, any discussion that we haven't uh, discussed already or questions of staff? Uh, seeing none, I will call for the vote. That passes four to three. Okay, got through that one. Item 7.3. Um, City Manager, did you want to have some comments here? Good evening, Mayor. I'm going to ask Assistant City Manager Susan Galvan to come up to present this report and answer any questions that the Council may have. Good evening, Mayor, members of the City Council. I am actually going to be introducing uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the Assistant Finance Director, Katrin Baumhauer, and uh, Michelle Cresson, who is our Budget Manager, to be presenting this report. Good evening, Honorable Mayor and members of the City Council. This mid-year budget report gives an update on where the general fund currently stands midway through this fiscal year 2023, and we will also provide a first look at fiscal 24. Do you want to? Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> fiscal year 23 revenues are estimated to be $137.6 million, $5.8 million above budget. While staff anticipates an overall revenue increase over budget, as the economy is signaling the early signs of a recession, we continue to take a conservative approach in budgeting for revenues. Sales tax is anticipated to be about $2.7 million over the budget of $50.1 million, mostly due to heightened prices in the fuel sector, positive performance in building and construction activity, as well as in restaurants and general consumer goods. Online shopping allocations from the county tax pool also continue to bring in additional revenue. Property tax is anticipated to be $51.2 million, almost 600,000 over budget due to annual increases in assessed property values and more property tax increment distributed from the county for the successor agency. Transient occupancy taxes, TOT, are expected to be at their budgeted amount of $5.1 million. Last year, business and leisure travel increased with more lenient federal and state travel mandates, but they've now slowed due to in the inflation of general consumer goods and less spending power for consumers. Finally, miscellaneous revenues are anticipated at $2.3 million, 1.3 million more than the budgeted amount. The majority of this increase is contributed by reimbursements from the Office of Emergency Services for the city's assistance in wildland firefighting. On the expenditure side, total adjusted appropriations are 133.8 million, an increase from 130.3 million due to approved budget adjustments. 
As has been the result for the past several years, the general fund historically ends each fiscal year with savings and expenditures, and our initial analysis shows that we will stay slightly below target appropriations with net revenues over expenditures of 3.4 million and an estimated total general fund balance of approximately $26 million. The city's reserve policy was adopted in fiscal year 21 to satisfy bond covenants. The required minimum is $39 million. And the projected reserve balance at this upcoming June 30th will be $54.4 million. For reference, however, the total of all these funds was $61.7 million at the end of fiscal year 19. So we're not quite all the way back to our pre-pandemic levels. Looking ahead to fiscal year 24, we are forecasting an initial net revenue over expenditures of $750,000. However, expenditures are expected to escalate due to anticipated inflation factors, upcoming employee group negotiations, position changes and additions, and a continued increase of contracted professional service, maintenance, and other obligations. While we have conservatively estimated revenues, we will continue to refine our estimates as we analyze actual tax receipts. And a more detailed analysis of revenue and expenditures, along with budget balancing strategies, will be discussed at the upcoming budget study sessions. The first, scheduled for March 25th, will focus primarily on our capital improvement projects. The second one, scheduled for April 25th, will focus on operational costs and department goals. And if necessary, a third study session will be scheduled in May with budget adoption to occur during a scheduled June City Council meeting. The staff report includes a number of recommended actions as is typical for a mid-year report. Back in October, staff provided an update on the <clears throat> close of the books for fiscal year 22. And we had indicated we would be proposing several transfers and appropriations at mid-year. These were items that were not anticipated at the time the budget was adopted and are listed as recommended actions one through 10 on the staff report. And they're highlighted here in this slide. Item 13 is the result of staff's continued review of city operations, specific city council direction and customer service needs. And it proposes changes to several existing classifications as well as the addition of new staff classifications and three new FTE or full-time equivalent positions. Staff believes these changes can be all be absorbed with the current appropriation levels. Should council approve these changes, the reclassifications and new positions will be budgeted at their appropriate classification and ranges in fiscal 24. Finally, recommended action items number 11 and 12 are complementary to number 13, as it is required to update the agreement between the city and our bargaining groups for the reclassification of respective positions, as well as to update the citywide salary schedule. That concludes my report, and we are happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much. Any questions from council members? A quick question, please. Uh, real quickly, on um, sales tax revenue, you're anticipating it to be about $51 million. Um, on, on the report, um, our actual to December 31st only shows that about 
So, or 21%. Ex excellent question. It's all to do with the timing. I checked the numbers today and we're at 43% of budget. We're almost at 22 million. It's just a, the way the um, state reconciles and adjusts it for actual receipts. So we will continue to receive sales tax attributable to the fiscal year as late as the beginning of September. Okay, and then on the on the 510 fund, um, with that balance, it's this is one of those ones I got particularly wrapped around the wheel recently, as you heard the earlier item. Um, we're starting on, I went back and looked through a number of the fiscal years going back to I believe 17, and every year we have a, a you know, it's the starting actual, and let's just say it was six million. And then we have June 30th with the anticipated, uh, <clears throat> the anticipated uh, revenue or anticipated uh, ending balance. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember which year, but it went from six million to, to 12 million, but then we have the next day of July 1st that suddenly shows, you know, back to six million. What, what happens when uh, and it seems to, on the 510 fund specifically, looking back historically, um, it, has an, it has an actual, it has what we think where it's going to be and then what it actually ended up, and it's always off by five, six, seven million dollars a year. Are, are we overestimating the, those funds, or is it just, uh, are, we're just missing the mark entirely, and maybe it's perhaps time to go back and look at how we're estimating that fund specifically? Okay. While we might need to get you specific information, I'm going to defer to Michelle Cresson, our budget manager, who has more specific experience. Yeah, uh, Councilmember Dimitriou, good afternoon. Um, for 510, um, those are actually dependent on develop the development. So we try our best to project those out when they don't occur. That's um, it's a substantial amount of money that we don't get. So we do address and it does fluctuate just depending on whether or not those developments occur for that year. We are looking at how we, um, on that fund particularly, because it is difficult if we're planning um, those CIP projects with this funding and the funding doesn't happen, then we don't have any other funding source so that project has to put, get pushed out. So um, that that is why there's a fluctuation. It's just because we're projecting um, these developments that don't occur. All right, all right, thank you. No problem. Anyone else? In that case, uh, we need a motion to receive and file the report and approve uh, the following one through 13 recommendations. And I don't have my screen back. Hit view presentation down there. Oh, there you Thank go. you very much. I have a motion and a second. Um, any further discussion? Then please vote. Is there a motion and a second? There we go. A little delay. That is unanimous. Okay. Um, any reports from our city manager that we're not aware of? No, sir. Okay. Well done. Thank you. Um, we have a request from our city manager to, uh, he anticipates that item 9.3 will move quickly, if perhaps move that ahead of the other two uh, public hearings. Does anyone have any heartburn over that? Okay, item 9.3. 
Do we need uh, any staff comments on that? Oh, I'm sorry. I <laughs> I think we're going to get this done very quickly. Um, <clears throat> we have a motion and uh, looking for a second. Any other discussion on item 9.3? Seeing none. Mayor, vote. excuse me yes. for a moment. Can we please open the public hearing? It's still oh. a public hearing and close. I'm sorry, it is a public hearing. Do we have anyone from the public that would like to speak on this item? I see none. Thank I will you. close the public hearing then. And uh, we have a motion and a second. Uh, I'll call for the vote. That is unanimous. Um, I've been asked if we could take a five minute break and uh, then we'll resume then. <laughs> very much. I'm going to have to reverse course a little bit and understand that uh, there was a procedural issue with uh, item 9.3. Um, so I believe Council Member Villado has a, a motion to continue. Yes, uh, Mr. Mayor, on item 9.3, I make a motion that we withdraw our uh, previous action tonight and continue this item till the council meeting of March the 28th. We have a motion and a second. Any further discussion? If not, please vote. That's unanimous. Okay, so we're going to back up to item 9.2. So, um, I'll begin. Uh, sadly, it, uh, I don't like to do this, but uh, I own a property at 222 East La Vida, so I've been advised that I uh, must abstain. Uh, Mr. Mr. Mayor, are you oh. referring to 9.1? Yes. Did I say 9.2? Yes. Okay, I'm sorry. I did mean 9.1. This is the appeal of the Planning Commission decision upholding Design Review Committee approval of Design Review Number 5077-22, a proposal to construct a new 1,102-square-foot duplex unit with an attached 227-square-foot garage at the rear of an existing single-family dwelling on a property zoned duplex residential at 529 South Grand Street. So as I was saying, I own a property um, very close by at 222 East La Vida Avenue, and uh, I have been advised... <clears throat> that uh, according to law, I must abstain on this hearing. And um, additionally. And additionally, since I did the initial appeal, I must also recuse myself. So we'll both be stepping out. So with that, um, I will ask the, for the council's permission to allow 
Council Member Dimitru to uh, run this public hearing. Uh, consensus on that? Okay, very good. John, you're up. Thank you, Mayor. <clears throat> Again, we're, uh, it'll be item 9.1, appeal number 0561-22, an appeal of the Planning Commission decision upholding Design Review Committee approval of Design Review Number 507-22, a proposal to construct a new 1,102-square-foot duplex unit with attached 227-square-foot uh, garage at the rear of an existing single-family dwelling at the property uh, zoned duplex residential at 529 South Grand. And Mr. City Manager, um, if we have a staff, uh, Ms. Bohoshak, if we'll go ahead and do our staff report, please. Thank you. Thank you, council members. Good evening. On October 5th, the Design Review Committee approved Design Review Number 507722 uh, involving the construction of the duplex council member Dimitri uh, just described uh, behind an existing historic single family dwelling at 529 South Grand Street. <clears throat> the property has duplex zoning and the project complies with the development standards for the R2 zone. The project was also found by the DRC to be in compliance with the city's historic preservation design standards. <clears throat> the DRC approval was appealed to the Planning Commission on October 20th by Councilwoman Barrios based on lack of compliance with the design standards and inappropriate scale and massing as detailed in Attachment 7 of your staff reports. The Planning Commission upheld the approval on December 5th. The Planning Commission action was then appealed to the City Council by the Old Town Preservation Association on December 16th, with the basis of the appeal revolving around staff's determination that the project is categorically exempt from the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA. As detailed in the appeal, which is provided as attachment one to your staff report, the appellant disagrees with the CEQA exemption determination and focuses on the project's potential to result in a significant adverse change in the significance of a historic resource and also its potential to result in cumulative impacts to his, a historic resource. Uh, there, were, there was a number of uh, items of correspondence that came into the city on this item that's been forwarded to you. And um, I would just like to note that based on the council's action tonight, staff will return to the council with a resolution reflecting uh, the determination at a future meeting. That concludes my presentation. Thank you, Ms. Bojack. Any of our colleagues have uh, any questions? <clears throat> Go ahead. Okay. All right, we'll open the... Uh, Go ahead and open the uh, public hearing. Uh, first, we're going to go ahead and start with our uh, appellant, OTPA. Uh, if you have a representative, come forward. Councilman, Councilman Dimitriou and uh, members of City Council, my name is Robert Boyce. I'm the president of Old Town Preservation Association. I live at 143 North Pine Street in Orange. To begin, Old Town Preservation Association holds in high regard our city staff and the hard work that they do and the high level of professionalism and expertise that they bring to the table. Likewise, we have great respect for the Design Review Committee and recognize that the body comprises of members with professional experiences and in-depth knowledge of the city's historic resources, 
and attention to the Old Town design standards as well as the Secretary of Interior standards. That being said, we are appealing the Planning Commission action on this project due to process. We feel that there was no, not adequate uh, appreciation application of the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, as it applies to the historic resources and the historic district. We have provided the City Council and staff copies of our support information for their review. This project does qualify as a project under CEQA, quote, the construction of, new, of a new dwelling unit not only may, but most certainly would create a material or physical change to the environment, and thus it qualifies as a project under CEQA. That's Public Resources Code 21080. City staff has determined that this project was exempt from CEQA through the application of Class Three categorical exemption. CEQA legislation does, however, include exceptions to the use of categorical exemptions. I will highlight three of those exceptions. Number one, under exception A, location, a project which ordinarily might be insignificant in its impacts may be significant in a sensitive environment. A class three exemption does not, uh, does not apply when the project may impact an environmental resource that is designated, precisely mapped, and officially adopted pursuant to law from federal, state, or local agencies. The proposed project is located within two overlapping, previous, uh, precisely mapped historic districts comprising, uh, comprised of historic uh, resources officially adopted by the City of Orange, the State of California, and the National Park Service. Therefore, Class Three exemption cannot be used. Number two, under Exemption B, cumulative impact. The proposed project is situated on a property determined to be of historic significance as it is a contributor to both the local and national registered Old Town Historic Districts. As such, any analysis of potential cumulative impacts should be considered not just on the site of this block, but within the cumulative context of the historic district. While no preliminary CEQA study being, uh, was being carried out, no analysis has been prepared to consider the significance of past, current, or foreseeable future projects. Therefore, class three exemption cannot be used. Number three, this is exception F for historic resources. A, <clears throat> a categorical exemption shall not be used for a project which may cause substantial um, adverse change to a significance of a historic resource. Because the Old Town Historic District meets the eligibility requirements for designation to the National Register, it also designates to the California Register as well. The National Park Service defines a historic district as a collection of resources posing, quote, a significant concentration, linkage, or consistency of sites, buildings, or objects united historically or uh, aesthetically by plan or by physical development. It's important to keep in mind that 
the vast majority of the properties in our historic district do not rise to the level of historic significance individually. It's only through their uh, commutative uh, whole that some being greater than the parts that these individual properties contribute cumulatively to establish the largest national register district in the state of California. Therefore, a class three exemption cannot be used. And I want to highlight that for the purposes of CEQA, the entire historic district is the historic resource. I want to say that one more time. It's important to know that for the purposes of CEQA, the entire historic district is the historic resource. Old Town Preservation Association understands that the purpose of CEQA is not to permit or deny projects. Instead, the legislation is intended to identify and understand the potential effects of proposed projects prior to their construction. As the state of California continues to hand down legislation relating to housing, CEQA will become more and more important. Inadequate handling of CEQA, the CEQA process, most certainly contribute to poor development, delayed projects, and eventual litigation for the city. Compliance with CEQA is not only the right thing to do, it is the law. Let me say this in conclusion. It doesn't matter where in California your home, you live. Our homes, our neighborhoods, and our communities are under assault by the state of California. One of the only tools that the city will have to address these projects will be CEQA. You need to know CEQA. Our staff needs to know it backwards and forwards. Maybe the city could, should consider a CEQA consultant. OTPA is looking for one right now. But you can start with this project. You can deny the uh, and, and return the uh, project to the DRC and have the staff prepare a new staff report based on the applications of the appropriate parts of CEQA. We need to stop looking at proposed projects in the historic district as isolated events. We need to evaluate their effect on the whole district. We need to consider past, current, and foreseeable projects and their potential diminishment of the historic district. And please, if you honor the historic district, if you are proud that among all the cities in California, Orange is known as having the largest national registered district in the state, then your decisions must defend our historic district. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boyce. Uh, the applicant, Vakovich, uh, are you going to present or uh, will you have somebody else? Yourself? Go ahead, ma'am. Hi, members of the City Council. Happy Valentine's Day. I wanted to say thank you to those of you that took the time to meet with us prior to this meeting. Um, by way of introduction, my name is Allison Vukovic, and my husband, Mike, is not able to be here tonight. We're the owners of 529 South Grand Street. Um, I'm going to read tonight because I think it's the most efficient way to just get the detail on the record. Um, a little background on us. We were both born and raised in Orange County. We're raising our three children nearby. After growing up in Irvine, I went to college where I earned a degree in the history of art and architecture. My love of architecture and historical buildings is what led us to investing in Old Town Orange. Last year, we purchased two homes next door to each other on Grand. One of the homes was in disrepair and needed some TLC to make it livable. The other historical home needed changes to the mechanical systems, systems for safety reasons. I thoroughly enjoyed researching the finishes and fixtures that are appropriate to the restoration of homes in order to bring them to modern standards while still maintaining all of the historical qualities that we love so much. 
I'm proud that we were able to restore the homes to their original glory without sacrificing any of the historical integrity. Our proposed project is a small 1,100 square foot living space that has garnered much scrutiny and debate over the last year. It's a home that we'd like to build for our family as a potential home for our aging parents or one day our kids, but in the meantime, we will likely be renting it out. We're building this home because it's ideal for a family, but we're also open to renting to students, though we do limit our properties to one student per bedroom. I wanna be clear, this is not a student housing project. Our goal is to build a duplex unit and protect our investment in the city of Orange. I hope that by explaining our project, we can move forward without having to waste more of the city's valuable resources. We've spent a considerable time, a considerable amount of time and work to design the second unit that's sensitive to the neighborhood and Old Town aesthetic, and have significantly scaled back our original proposal based on the feedback we've received. The proposed unit is 1,329 square feet, including a 227 square foot garage. The total livable area is 1,102 square feet. We plan to use quality construction materials and finishes so that this home will stand proudly for the next 100 plus years next to the original home and become part of the fabric of Old Town Orange. The zoning of the Nutwood Tract has been brought up in previous meetings. Um, and while the zoning change is not what's being decided upon tonight, it's worth noting that it was recently explored by the city. As some of you may recall, there was a study of this area south of La Vida in 2017 to consider downzoning to single family <coughs> residential. Ultimately, the city council rejected the proposal, proposed downzoning down because it would have created many legal non-conforming properties in the area. The appeal before you tonight questions the staff determination that this project is exempt from CEQA. The city's professional planning staff and the DRC and planning commission determined that the proposed second unit complies with all of the applicable standards, guidelines, and criteria, including the city's municipal code and zoning, the city's historical preservation design standards for Old Town Orange, the city's infill residential guidelines, and the Secretary of the Interior standards for treatment of historical properties and guidelines for preserving, rehabilitating, restoring, and reconstructing historical buildings. The city staff, DRC, and Planning Commission has correctly determined that this project is categorically exempt as Class 3 in construction. Throughout the past year, I've watched and attended most of the design review Planning Commission and City Council members, there have been several projects that have been approved with CEQA exemptions that have a far wider environmental impact than our small dwelling. Since our project seemed to have garnered elevated attention, we wanted to better understand the issues. Sorry. As a matter of community outreach, we had a call this morning with Rob and Diana of OTPA. In our meeting, their concern was the process for approval as it relates to CEQA exemptions, and they had no questions or recommendations to the design of our project. The process for development applications is well documented and has been followed in this case. Our project was approved by Design Review Committee in October of last year. An appeal to Planning Commission was heard and denied. We have followed all of the processes and procedures to building this project. We have taken guidance and suggestions and incorporated them into the design. We have listened to the community and attempted to address their concerns. We have spent far more time and money and wasted more city resources than should be necessary for such a small project. <laughs> We have a buy right to build this unit and would like to protect the property rights that we paid for. During past DRC Planning Commission and City Council meetings, a parallel has been drawn between Orange and other historical cities. It has been suggested that you wouldn't build a brand new house next to a historical building because it would diminish the historical resource. However, Rome wasn't built in a day, or a year, or even a century. Great historical cities preserve historical resources but also allow for change and growth. By allowing this small three-bedroom house, the city will have a well-built fun functional residence with a design that's been approved by DRC. 
The alternative is an ADU and a JADU, which is not suitable for a family, requires no on-site parking, does not require DRC input, and has smaller setbacks. We truly believe that the planned unit is the most sensitively designed addition to our property. In our due diligence, we've reached out to the California Housing and Community Development Department to make them aware of efforts within the city to preclude additional housing development. The City of Orange Housing Element Plan, which is required by the State of California, specifically lists R26 zoning as a contributing to the city's additional housing for population growth. Um, I have our architects here tonight if you have questions about the design specifically. We've also been working with land use attorneys and CEQA experts. Jason Persons from Rattan and Tucker is here tonight um, and is going to go over the CEQA issues in more detail. But in the meantime, I wanted to say that Old Town is a treasure to the Orange County community. We hope that like other great cities from history, we can pre preserve the historical homes, but also allow for growth in the community by building high quality, appealing housing to support the growing population. Thank you for your time and consideration. And Mrs. Walkovich, do you want uh, your representative from Rotan Tucker to speak as part of your- uh, Yes. Your, okay, good. Yes, this is Jason. Good evening. Uh, I promise to keep this brief. Uh, it's not terribly exciting material. But uh, first of all, I do want to thank you and thank everybody who's been involved in this, uh, planning staff, the DRC, the Planning Commission, and all of you. Uh, it takes a lot of time and effort uh, to look into these sorts of things, and uh, that's not lost on us. So thank you very much. A little bit about myself. So my name's Jason Parsons. I am a land use and entitlement attorney with Rutan and Tucker in Irvine. Uh, I'm a CEQA specialist, and so on a day-to-day -day basis, I help project applicants entitle uh, projects. This includes uh, up to multi-million square foot uh, warehouse projects, all the way down to uh, small single-family units as here. So I come to this with uh, some experience. I don't purport to know all that is knowable, um, but I do have a little bit of a background. And uh, as Ms. Vukovic mentioned, she hired us and retained us, uh, in essence, to provide a peer review to uh, planning staff's work. And I'm happy to report they did a fantastic job. Uh, the staff's conclusions are accurate and they are correct. I say that with a broad and extensive uh, depth of professional experience. And I would have reached the same conclusions as they did. The bottom line is that this project is categorically exempt from CEQA. That is all you need to know to make the decision tonight to deny this appeal. This is not a close call. Um, I'm often brought in to consult on very difficult questions relating to CEQA. It raises, uh, CEQA typically is known to raise very complex questions of law and fact and the application of each to each other. This is not that case. This is not a marginal case. This is exempt under the exemption that staff has chosen. In fact, it's un exempt under numerous different ways under CEQA, but certainly it's exempt under class three. Um, and that's very simple. If you read class three, it exempts from CEQA uh, small structures and expressly enumerates duplexes and second units. As you know, CEQA is a process and you have the project and the exemption is the first sort of detour departure from the CEQA process. And this project falls decidedly within that exemption. Now, uh, we've submitted to you a letter for your review. I hope you've had a chance to read it. Uh, it's, it's filled with legal citations and the reasons why we think the way we do. 
and I, and I hope you uh, have a chance to, haven't had a chance to review it, and I'm happy to answer, answer any questions on it. Um, but I would like to, uh, you know, I respect your time, so I won't belabor the, what's in there. But I do want to make a few points uh, raised by uh, Mr. Boyce. Um, you know, he, he raises, the appellants raise here uh, primarily the two exceptions, um, which would be the historic resources exception and cumulative impacts exception. Uh, they have all now also now raised before you the location exemption exception. Since we didn't really explore that in our letter because that wasn't actually raised in their appeal, um, I just want to briefly mention that courts uh, have understood that exception in a dictionary literal sense. So it has to essentially be a mapped location, um, typically by you'd say BLM, uh, seismic zoning maps. Uh, basically, the courts have described this as quote natural resources of wealth uh, or uh, uh, extraction or these sorts of things. This is obviously not that. So that exception just simply does not apply. The historical resources exception, again, has been understood by courts to uh, effectively address when a uh, project physically alters or modifies or adjusts an existing historic resource. I would like to remind you that this is not that. Uh, this is a new construction behind an existing home. Uh, that, that exception just simply uh, cannot apply under the circumstances. But I will say, even if, uh, even if it did, and it, it does not, uh, but even if it did, CEQA does provide an exit uh, ramp from that also, in that if you observe the Secretary of Interior's standards, the uh, project is considered to be mitigated to a less than significant level. So that exception does not apply. And finally, the cumulative impacts exception, I'd just like to briefly touch on that. Courts have rejected the very arguments appellants make tonight, which is that uh, second new residential units, or new residential units in a single sense, uh, do not, cannot snowball into somehow a uh, cumulative impact because others may possibly also develop. That is the Heinz case we cite in our letter. I encourage you to review it. It's just it, that, that argument has been rejected. But um, I think the real concern here that uh, appellants are raising has to do with uh, you know, density and zoning. And uh, you know, that uh, was sort of addressed, well, it was addressed when the city established the zoning and general plan designation. Uh, you know, it's a bedrock principle within CEQA that you do not reopen uh, environmental review absent some significant new changes like, for example, zone change, general plan update. Obviously, this is not that. So um, I would just like to uh, just conclude with those notes. Um, and again, we, we urge you to deny this appeal. Um, this is a permitted, permitted use by right. It is categorically exempt. In, in my, during my professional time in my career, I've not seen a more fitting uh, project to fall into that exemption. So thank you. And I'm available for any questions if anybody has any. I have a question. Go ahead, Councilmember Bildo. Um, thank you for your presentation, and I want to thank the um, appellant for their presentation. It sort of crystallized, I think, what is the um, what the item is on the table. Um, I see that uh, the DRC and then the um, Planning Commission upheld the determination that this follows under a Class Three exemption under CEQA. And I can see that the appellant here has given us some paperwork that would suggest that because the 
home is a historic resource that it sort of falls out of the class three exemption. What, what are your thoughts on that? Sure, I, I will just say this. When it comes to the exceptions, so here's a little secret primer, and I apologize, but I have a captive audience, and this is very interesting stuff to me. Believe it or not, uh, when you have an exemption, it is the city's burden to prove the exemption, and that they've done absolutely. When it comes to the exceptions, that is the appellant's job to prove the exception because it is functionally impossible for the city to prove a negative because how do you prove that an exception exists when it's, it's all couched in the negative? So CEQA puts the onus on appellants to bring forth substantial evidence, and that's the standard, in order to apply that exception. I'm gonna, I would like to remind the council, the substantial evidence standard is not uh, just anything. It's actually a rather high bar, and it's typically it will be... Uh, uh, expert uh, reports, it will be provable facts. These are, these are things that would withhold and uh, withstand judicial scrutiny. With all due respect to appellants, well-meaning neighborly concerns do not constitute substantial evidence in the record. There is no substantial evidence in the record for the city to deny this appeal. Does that answer your question, council member? Yes, thank you. Okay, thank you. Mayor, could I just, oh, excuse me. Ah. Oh, no, not yet. Uh, sorry, uh, <laughs> Council Member Dimitri, uh, just, just to clarify, the DRC Design Review Committee did, does not make CEQA determinations. What they determined was that it complied with the Secretary of Interior Standards. The Planning Commission, however, did make that finding, just for clarity. Any other questions from colleagues? Ms. Gutierrez? I have a question. I'm... This CEQA stuff is, as you said, very difficult to understand, and the exceptions and exemptions keep going back and forth in my, in my head, and, um, and it's mainly more, maybe more for staff. It's how do we determine that ex um, exemption is what I, I'm trying for, because I've read, I pulled some things online to try to understand, because in all um, transparency, I did meet with um, the owners, right, of the property, I didn't meet with OTPA, um, but I did meet with them. And I also had a briefing with staff. So I went home and tried to understand all that was being presented to me because this was, this was stuff that I'm not familiar with, though I needed to read. Um, and it was just, for me, it was more of how do we go about staff saying, yes, this is exempt. It falls under class three because of this, this, and this. And so class three to me was, I'm building a new building, a, new, a small structure, like you said. And that's just the reason why the um, ex exemption um, applies is kind of where I need to know. And then I was also reading something like we need to do a notice of exemption, something to that nature. So I'm, there's just so many things I don't quite understand. And I, and, and I believe that that's kind of what I'm hearing from OTPA, what I just heard right now. Because I really didn't know what they were uh, in regards to the um, uh, cumulative impact if it was just on that street the historic district, but now I definitely have the answer. I just heard him. And um, and I didn't know what exactly they're objecting because I even, I believe I heard Mr. Boyce say that, you know, they do have the right to build, but he wants it to be done properly. He wants secret procedures, and he doesn't feel that secret procedures were done correctly is what I'm understanding. So can now go back to my original question. How, how do we even decide on the exemption besides what I already think? Well, 
There are a number of CEQA exemptions very specifically identified in the local CEQA guidelines, or the state CEQA guidelines. And the whole purpose of the exemptions is to streamline the environmental review process for a variety of types of projects. One of those, um, the object, there, there are a few actually that the objective is to streamline housing development. And so this class three exemption, uh, again, is specific to small structures and specifically calls out duplexes, single family homes. And so the, the concept is that exemption was created to facilitate the creation of smaller scale residential development. <clears throat> so that was, that's kind of the first test of our uh, determination that the project is exempt. Then, uh, as Mr. Parsons mentioned, um, by virtue of the fact that the project has been designed to be both in compliance with our historic preservation design standards and the Secretary of Interior standards, there's an understanding that if there had been any potential for impacts, the design itself takes into consideration those historic resources, and so it, it's a, basically a self-mitigating project. So those two factors taken together is what has led staff to the feel comfortable with the class three exemption. And when we speak about the Secretary of Interior standards and the historical preservation standards, I know that during my briefing I asked for, for both of those and I wasn't able to get the Secretary. But there was, it was like this thick for me to read. I was like, didn't know what exactly I was looking for. Again, not being knowledgeable. Um, so for me to understand and maybe for the public to understand and um, the, the neighbors in that section is like, what exactly in Secretary of Interior standards did it meet? And what, it meet, what did it meet in the historical uh, preservations as well. Because I was looking for that in the staff report, and I even went back to look at DRC stuff. So like, and again, because they're more knowledgeable in that stuff, they would know. But that's kind of where, to help me understand what the issue and what, how, how did they meet those standards. Mm -hmm. Well, both in our local historic preservation design standards and in the Secretary of Interior standards, there is guidance for new construction uh, or you know, infill development <clears throat> related to historic property. And so there are a specific um, direction provided about um, making sure that the new construction does not imitate a historic structure so that there's, there's a differentiation between what's the historic structure, what's the new structure. So there are subtle, subtle differences in the case of this project, in the type of materials that are being used, the architectural details on the new structure. Um, there's this concept of the new structure being subordinate to the original structure. So in this case, you know, the unit is smaller. It's four feet shorter in height. Um, again, there's certain details that are on the historic home that have been left off the new uh, new unit, and that, that the guidance in our design standards is very similar to what you find in the Secretary of Interior standards for the new construction. So um, as this project was going through the DRC process, there was quite a bit of discussion about you know, making sure that the design of the new unit was subordinate to the historic structure. 
that with those items um, being in play, that's what covers the Secretary of Interior standards and the historical resource standards as well? Correct. Okay. Thank you. And then can you explain again the cumulative impacts? Because I think that's what <coughs> is the most uh, jumping out at me um, as what um, OTPA's appeal is about. Sure. So this is uh, this comes from uh, 14 Cal Code Regs uh, 15300.2b, and this is one of those exceptions to the exemptions. So of course it's the law, so there's always an exception to the rule. Uh, and so the idea behind this is that, and I'll quote the language directly: "It's the cumulative impact of successive projects of the same type in the same place over time is significant." I'm going to tell you that where this mostly crops up in is very large. Uh, for instance. Um, uh, distribution facilities, things of that nature, where you have a combination of impacts, for instance, traffic, and we're talking that's large scale, thousands of vehicles a day sort of uh, impacts, in combination with uh, other sorts of impacts, greenhouse gases and stuff. And the idea is that they build upon one another to create, you know, if, if you consider this, the idea behind sequence, if you consider it in, in a singular sense, in this very, you know, large scale, that um, there may be things to look at there. That was explicitly ruled out, however, for uh, situations like this, and again, that's the Heinz case in our letter. Um, that case was a, uh, a, a challenge there was based on a cumulative impact exception that supposedly did, uh, was stated to have applied, and the court found it did not, uh, to, new re to a new residence in a riparian zone solely on the basis that it may result, the argument was that it may result in other homes in that zone being built. The court said that that exception just does not apply, and that's essentially what we're dealing with, dealing with here. Um, and, and again, and, and to the second point, which is much more broader, is that uh, appellant's commentary would be um, more properly cognizable in were the city to, for instance, engage in a zoning change or a general plan update, um, things where you actually have a, a, a chance to properly uh, address density. But you know the city did zone this, what it zoned it, and it did that a long time ago. And when it did that, the assumption is um, that the city necessarily must have made is that they thought about the impacts and they were acceptable and that's what, that's what they are moving forward. So the, the point is it's already baked into the zoning that we're all familiar with. And, and here we are today. So that's sort of the cumulative impacts is very complicated. <laughs> it's actually probably one of the most complicated, complicated parts of CEQA. It's very difficult to, to understand even with years of experience. And um, hopefully I did a good job answering your question. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. It, no, it is. It's very confusing. I'd read one sentence saying, yes, you can, no, you can't. And it's quite uh, difficult to uh, wrap around my mind. But um, I had another question, and now it has escaped my mind. I was going to ask staff something, and I forgot now. Come back to me, please. <laughs> okay. Councilmember Gillenhammer, any, any questions for the uh, applicant? No. Councilmember Council Tavares? No. Okay. Um, thank you, Mr. Parsons. Thank you. All right. So you're working with the third string, so uh, be patient with me. But what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to start having our public speakers. So I'll call your name. Come to the podium. I'll call the second name, which uh, you can have a seat in the front. Uh, if you do happen to hear somebody say uh, uh, what exactly you were going to say, it, it's you can speak for three minutes, or you can just say, Mr. Tribuco already said what I wanted to say. So uh, 
Uh, we'll start with uh, Mr. Tom Aldridge and uh, Mr. Mark Wallace, you're on deck, sir. I, I can't hear you, I'm sorry. Okay, you don't wish to speak? Okay, Mr. Wallace, you're up. Uh, Miss uh, Linda Maxwell-Jordan, you're on deck. Good evening. Uh, my name is Mark Wallace. I live with my wife at 667 South Grand Street, close to Hard Park and very close to this project, proposed project at 529 uh, South Grand Street. In 2007, this council voted unanimously to deny approval of a conditional use permit for the Drenner project which was located just up the block from this project at 424 South Grand Street. And some of you who are on the council may, re may recall your service as a council member then. I believe Congress, uh, Councilman Dimitru, Councilman Bilodeau, I believe you were on the, you were among the group that voted unanimously to deny approval of, five, of 424 South Grand Street. Now the operative document that, that nixed the Drenner project was <clears throat> resolution number uh, 10189, a copy of which I have here in my hand. And this resolution sets an important precedent that should guide the council's decision here. The Drenner project proposed the construction of a 1,327 square foot housing unit, very similar to what's being proposed here. Now we're not asking to deny approval of it permanently. We're just asking that the appeal be granted and this matter be referred back to, remanded back to the Design Review Commission Committee for further use. And here's the key language in that resolution. Um, there was substantial, if not overwhelming, evidence that the 300 to 400 blocks of South Grand Street had been overly impacted and overly developed, that the situation had not changed, that the project would worsen what is already a problematic situation. That's exactly what our situation is here. The 500 to 600 blocks of South Grand Street, where I live, they're already massively overdeveloped with non-contributing properties. Just walk through Nutwood Track and you'll see it. Uh, this is the city's oldest subdivision created in 1906. We don't need to destroy any more of the historical significance of the Nutwood Track with construction of non-contributing structures violating sequel like this one. Um, and... Uh, Again, you know, resolution 10189, there was insufficient evidence submitted that could lead the city council to conclude that the project would enhance rather than detract from the historical significance of the project site. They have not shown how this would enhance the Nutwood Track. It won't. It will contribute to the Nutwood Track's further deterioration. Uh, this really, if this stuff goes on, Orange can kiss its historic district goodbye. We can't keep building these units like this. This is just deadly. I urge the council to simply remand this to the Design Review Committee. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. Uh, Ms. Maxwell-Jordan, you're up, and Caitlin Mansfield, you're on deck. Hello, I'm Linda Maxwell-Jordan. I live at 334 Toluca, just around the corner from this project. And I've been following this project from the design review committee meetings and the planning commission meetings. This is my first city council meeting. Um, and the discussion that we've been hearing with CEQA and all of this, we've been going through hours of these discussions. I noticed that tonight most of the votes were unanimous. At the DRC and the planning commission, the votes were not. There were hours of discussion 
about CEQA, of course, and just the unclearness of I'll read CEQA and think, oh, okay, that clearly brings up the negative impact on the historical integrity. And then someone else will bring up something that confuses the whole matter. So I think that definitely there needs to be some city um, review of how we look at these guidelines. Um, one item of discussion that many of the neighbors brought up at the meetings was the issue of traffic and parking and safety due to the number of cars that would be associated with this project because it is university housing. It's going to be university housing along with the property next door that the same people own that is university housing. And um, they stated that you know they would keep it to one student per bedroom. Well, in Old Town Orange, one student means one car. So three bedrooms, three cars, three more bedrooms, three more cars, three more bedrooms, three more cars. We could be up to 12 cars on this little stretch of Grand Avenue that only has parking on one side. It's the only way in and out of the Nutwood Place tract for some of us because River has the big tree in the one-way street. So some of us, the only way we can get in and out is on Grand Avenue. And if we have we, there's not even room for 12 cars on that street, as well as the people who already live there. The driveways are small. The garages are small. Um, it's already dangerous. Sometimes you have to wait in the line of six cars to get out of the intersection. Um, the other morning, I almost got hit trying to get out because someone was trying to turn in. Another time, the whole intersection of La Vida was blocked because people were trying to get in and out. So I'd like the city council to please take time to review all the CEQA stuff and the historic design standards and also address the safety of our community and maintain the historical integrity of our neighborhood. Thank you. Great, thank you, Ms. Maxwell Jordan. Uh, Caitlin Mansfield, uh, please, uh, there you are. And uh, Mr. Tribuco, you are on deck, sir. Good evening, my name is Caitlin Mansfield and I live on South Grand Street. And I would like to state that I support OTPA's appeal of this project and support what the prior speakers have also said. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Mansfield. Uh, Mr. Tribuco, in, uh, here we go. This will be my first tough one. Diana Zindek. Thank you. Oh. City Council, appreciate your time. I'm Tony Tribuco. I live on uh, South Orange, just right around the corner from the proposed project. Um, first, I'd just like to recognize that the property, we I realize, is zoned R2, and the owner has certain rights with regard to that property. My objection is to lack of process and that the CEQA exceptions uh, really haven't been considered when exempting this project from CEQA. That's been kind of beaten to death. Um, I think the applicant and, and their team would like to lead us to believe that those exceptions only apply to large projects, as it was mentioned, but they apply to the historic resource. I think as Mr. Boyce mentioned, that's the whole resource. It's the whole district. And many of you now, now that we're by, by district, have historic districts within your areas. They're coming for you guys too. This is not going to be just a district one issue uh, much longer. Um, we, we subject a lot of these, all these projects rather, to a lot of debate about, and, and I submitted a lot of this to you in writing already, but color, mass and scaling, whether it meets uh, zoning, those kinds of things. 
But the one thing we don't ever debate publicly, and this is probably the exception, is CEQA. Um, there was a lot of discussion about it at DRC, but of course they can't discuss CEQA. The Planning Commission spent probably less than a minute or two on CEQA when the project was brought before them. They just rubber stamped whatever staff said. What I would like to see is a little bit more transparency with regard to how we arrive. I think uh, Ms. Gutierrez was kind of heading down that path with, uh, once it's determined by staff that something is CEQA exempt, the public really doesn't have a, a lot of input into it other than to, to sue, which nobody wants to do that. It's, it's expensive, it's time consuming, um, and most of, of us don't have the resources to, to do that with the city. It's unfortunate, uh, and I've said this many times, that in, our, in the largest National Register Historic District in the state, that we don't have a more resident-friendly uh, process for challenging the CEQA status of a project. Um, I would implore you to not approve or even consider this project until the CEQA impacts can be completely evaluated. Um, if we do so, it just creates a really bad precedent for all of our historic districts. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tribuco. Uh, Diana Zendek and Sue Varas, you're next. Good evening. The preservation community, as well as discretionary decision makers, have been questioning the application of this exemption from the very beginning. So it's both surprising and disappointing that we are now looking at a second appeal of this project and still don't have a, any concrete justification in response to our question, why is this categorically exempt? Clearly, the use of this exemption has caused a lot of question and debate, and yet still no real answer other than it's exempt. That's not an explanation. I've checked with the city and was informed that no notice of, ex of exemption has been filed. While I understand that an NOE filing is not required, it would seem that, at this point, one would be made available so that the public would have a narrative expressing how or why this project is CEQA exempt. Also, as far as uh, CEQA ex exceptions, it does say for if if an item is unique or unusual, then an exception will apply. Our district is the largest historic district, not only in the city, but in the county and in the state of California. So that alone makes, makes it unusual and unique. Tonight, I'm asking that you uphold this appeal. This has fallen into question, and we think that this is a reasonable request. At the very least, you should do an initial study and justify the findings. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Vars. Next speaker after Ms. Vars will be Tim McCormick. Sue Vars. I live at um, 251 North Cambridge. Our historic district is fragile, and all efforts and decisions should be made on the side of preservation, as there will never be any additions <clears throat> to this district. It started life as a single-family area with a few duplexes built during the 20s, and consists of one square mile and approximately 1,300 structures that contribute, all built prior to 1940. As more homes are modified or remodeled and possibly lose their status, our numbers will shrink. At what point does Old Town Orange no longer qualify as a historical district? Where is the tipping point? I, and I'm sure many others, chose to live in this district for a variety of reasons, including the charm, character, and lifestyle of the bygone era. There were also financial considerations made, such as the cost of restoration and the Mills Act tax break. 
Prior to homeowners' efforts to save this area by getting it recognized and placed on the historic district, it was deemed blighted. Preservation efforts have turned that around, and now property values for these homes are above average. The district and its lifestyle, not just a building, is the historic resource. Let's not kill the goose who laid the golden egg. It is unfortunate that the Nutwood Tract area still maintains R2 zoning. This makes it vulnerable to developers more interested in cashing in than the quality of life and preservation of a district. The proposed construction at 529 South Grand Street, as well as any future plans for 515 South Grand Street, will set a negative precedent and create a slippery slope towards future projects. With only 10 homes on this block, changes to these two properties will make a huge impact. I'm asking that you reconsider prior approval and assess the cumulative impact to the district as a whole by conducting a CEQA analysis. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. McCormick. And following Mrs. Mr. McCormick will be uh, Victoria Laughlin. Good evening, council members. Um, I actually wrote this down because I normally don't do this, but I tend to ramble. So um, I am in opposition to this project, but that doesn't mean that something can't be built here. I will speak today on some architectural concepts and, look, and forward planning as we look at this project. I have presented an earlier public comment to explore an expanded architectural viewpoint for use in this historic district. The possibility of using different architectural vernacular to complement this historic contributing home. Not a new home or house behind an historic home, another structure that is surrounding and in same looking use. My thoughts were possibly a barn, a garage, carriage house, a workshop, a shed, a pool house, something that doesn't appear as another new house. Subordination as is noted that you've heard tonight, is not only expressed in size. <coughs> An imitation is not recommended here. But subordination is knowing what the main house is. So that's basically the concept. I understand that this project is zone R2. That is the premise slash foundation of what you presently see proposed here. This, in part, is the entire problem that was created 22 years ago with a zone change from R1 to R2. The real issue here is that this project should be subjected to a review under the California Environmental Quality Act and not be designated as exempt. Review should be on its impact on the entire designated Old Town Historic District. The key issues going forward are setting a precedence. Precedence is a very, very strong legal step. Setting precedence by not doing due diligence, by approving an exemption, setting precedence sets up continuing cumulative impacts and effects. This double-edged sword of precedence plus and cumulative impacts slash effects will effectively cut both ways on the district's concentration of historic resources and historic fabric. This project deserves to be reviewed due to its significant impact on the beloved Old Town Orange District, historical district the largest national registered district in California. Please consider this due diligence and evaluate the project 
On the California Environmental Quality Act, due diligence is not exemption on the entire district's resources. Cumulative impact often only gets recognizable after it is already too late. I am not supposed to mention it, but the approaching elephant in the room. But your first cumulative effect could be coming soon right next door. Thank you, Mr. McCormick. Uh, Victoria Laughlin. Good evening. Victoria Laughlin. I live at 320 South Olive Street. I also serve as vice president for the Old Town Preservation Association. I am in support of the CEQA appeal made by the Old Town Preservation Association, OTPA, regarding the property at 529 South Grand Street. I believe further study needs to be done on the environmental impact of this project, most directly to the homes surrounding this property, but also the impact on our historic district as a whole. The issue today is, is adding a new structure behind an existing and the impact it will have on the neighborhood. The proposed new structure is very equal in size to the original home. The applicant has admitted that it will be rented to Chapman students and that there could be as many as 12 living between the two houses. Now, those are numbers I originally heard she's referred differently tonight. Uh, the same applicant has purchased the property next door with the same plan. This is a money-making venture with no consideration of quality of life in the neighborhood. 12 plus, maybe more, uh, people living between two properties um, within, with potentially 24, 12 to 24 cars parking and adding to traffic flow on a street that is so narrow there is only parking on one side is absolutely a negative impact to the block. The quality of life on this street will be changed forever if these projects are, are allowed to proceed. The Nutwood Track is a unique little part of Old Town Historic District, actually a quieter section of the district, and this project will potentially change that forever. The Planning Commission needs to reevaluate the negative impact, as it is absolutely an issue with regard to the California Environmental Quality Act. I am very concerned that this project is allowed, if it's allowed to proceed, it will be setting a precedent that investors and developers can come in, alter the historic fabric of our historic district, and basically begin running a business in a neighborhood not zoned for running a business. This then, historically altering what many are working so hard to preserve. Thank you for consideration of my comments, and uh, I hope that we get to see this go back to DRC for further evaluation. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Laughlin. Uh, did you have a question? Well, okay. Well, um, go ahead and uh, we'll call up for any type of rebuttal. We'll start with uh, the applicant, um, which would be Ms. Vakovich, if uh, you wanted to speak, and then we'll follow that by the uh, appellant. Um, our architect, Doug Ely, is going to speak for our behalf. Good evening, members of City Council. My name is Doug Ely. Um, uh, architect, and uh, I am also a um, owner of a historic home in the Old Town Historic District. Uh, my home is having its 100th year birthday this year, so I'm excited about that. Um, I would like to set the record straight on a number of things that were uh, stated, um, but first I want to go over the appeal. It states 
that the staff did not consider exceptions pertaining to the CEQA exemption, and they cited these two exceptions, the cumulative impact and the historical resources. So the cumulative impact is defined <coughs> as successive projects of the same type in the same place over time being significant. Um, as far as the uh, subject property, um, there, there is no uh, successive projects. Um, there have been some statements about the property next door, and I will get to that in a minute. There, there was an application uh, for a similar type development, but it went through the DRC process, and it was denied. And through that process, uh, it was de denied because the floor area ratio uh, exceeded the um, Old Town design standards. We have design standards that protect uh, this and perform um, the necessary um, qualifications on projects for projects to fit within Old Town. Um, there are some developments that happened in the 1960s and the 70s, um, and um, they led to the desire for a, a rezone of the R2 lots to R1 lots because there was a lot of insensitive development. The project that we propose is a sensitive development. It has been reviewed by the DRC and has found to be compliant. Um, historical resources. Um, there's uh, the statement of an exception being an impact to a historic resource is if it's a substantial adverse effect. And a, a substantial adverse change is defined as physical demolition. We're not demolishing the existing historical resource. It's um, also defined as destruction. We're not destroying anything. Relocation, we're not relocating anything. Alteration of the resource, we're not touching the uh, primary residence, the historic resource. And it talks about its immediate surroundings as being substantial adverse effect such that the historic resource would be materially impaired. We are not materially impairing the uh, historic resource, which is the primary residence. Okay, so the, the lot size, this lot size is two times, almost two times the standard lot size. It's, um, what, 11,000... 250 square feet. The, the typical lot size is about 6,000 square feet. Uh, it is zoned R2. Um, the floor area ratio, which is defined by the developable area divided by the total site area, uh, the average, the floor area ratio on this site with the development is, is the lowest of any of the other developments on, on the street. If you look on our title sheet, you'll see that the floor area ratio is consistent 
with the um, the average for the street, and um, it be, it still is lower than most of actually all the other ones on the street. Um, I mentioned it's uh, zoned R2. It's um, by right. Uh, the design was found by the design review committee to be compatible and subordinate to the primary historic structure. Um, it complies with the general plan, and it complies with the Secretary of Interior standards. Um, um, Councilmember Gutierrez, you, you mentioned about the Secretary of Interior standards. Well, if you read the Old Town design standards, you'll see that it has taken the Secretary of Interior standards and duplicated them, and they're integrated and they're woven into our Old Town design standards. Um, that's what the DRC is looking at when they're reviewing these projects. That's what staff is looking at for, for compliance. Um, uh, I also want to address second unit versus the accessory dwelling unit concept. A uh, second unit is actually a more sensitive development than an accessory dwelling unit because a second unit um, requires parking. Um, in this project, we've proposed a three-bedroom, two-bath unit, and there are two parking spaces that are provided on the site. Um, the difference between this and an ADU, an ADU is limited to two bedrooms, but uh, people are not required to be providing parking. And in fact, they can take an existing garage and remove parking and, and develop it into a habitable use. Um, a second unit is required to be um, to go through a DRC review. An ADU is not. There's no discretionary review. So the, the, the second unit is a much more sensitive development. Um, now, the comments that um, you heard, um, just kind of going down the list here, uh, uh, Mr. Boyce in his appeal mentioned that this qualifies under CEQA because it's a material or physical change. Uh, yes, it's a physical change because we're adding a unit. That's pretty obvious in, in the back. But that's not what uh, the requirement is. It's a substantial adverse change to the historic resource, which this is not. Um, cumulative impact uh, in historic resources, I, um, I'll get into that in a little bit, but um, he also mentioned that the only tools of CEQA, well, that's not a correct statement because the t we already have the tools. It's with staff's review. It's with the design review. It's our Old Town design standards. Um, this project is compliant with all of those standards, and it has been found as such through the approval of the DRC and the um, upholding of that approval by the Planning Commission. Um, uh, Mr. Wallace referred to the Drenner project, um, and he compared that project with our project. Um, the Drenner project was a second unit over a garage. And uh, I'm not sure about the size of that project, but it was also in the rear yard of a 
home that had a two-story addition on it, so it was much more impactful. This one, if you looked at the two projects, it's not even close to a comparison. Um, it, the, that Drenner project was also, I believe, prior to the downzoning of the R2 lots to R1. So that project kind of um, led to uh, a lot of of the public and the residents coming out, and, and rightly so. I mean, we want to protect our neighborhoods from um, adverse changes that are going to materially impact. Um, the change before you is, is, is not adverse, and it's in compliance with all the development standards. Um, there's been comments about 12 cars. That is... Um, uh, an inflation of about the number of cars that are going to be created by this project. Um, there are parking spaces on site to be able to uh, uh, contain the parking so it is not to be on the street. Um, there is a garage on the property. We're adding a garage to the, the second unit and there's also on-site parking. Um, Lack of process was mentioned by um, another gentleman. Um, I think the process has been here, and I've mentioned it before. Uh, staff, DRC, Planning Commission, we've been through it all. Um, As far as um, comments by uh, Mr. McCormick about a different architectural vernacular, uh, we went through this extensively with design review. Our design is subordinate to the primary residence. Uh, it's a slab on grade uh, compared to the raised subfloor of the original residence. So the roof, I believe, is about four feet smaller. Um, as an architect, we try to denote a sense of entry, and we had to take architecture out of it just to really subordinate it so that it's not, it doesn't really have a, a visibly defined um, point of, of entry. And if you look at the 3D views of it from the street, you don't really see it much. It's tucked behind the original residence. Um, Anyway, as far as the size and the scale, it is smaller in size than the um, original residence. It's substantially, uh, and it's, it's smaller in size and it's smaller in scale. Um, and then lastly, I think this is repetitive. The last speaker talked about 24 cars being, being added. Uh, since we were retained on this project, I've visited this street numerous times. Um, probably close to 40 times, and I've never seen uh, the, the number of cars that are being spoken about as being a conflict on that street. In fact, very few cars are there when I have visited the site. That doesn't mean it doesn't get congested. I mean, during the street fair, um, all of our streets are congested. And so there's an event, the, the Wednesday concerts at the, at the band shell. Yeah, the street's going to get impacted. But we've addressed the parking because the parking is on site 
and we've uh, complied with all the, all the standards. The last thing I wanted to point out is um, uh, OTPA wishes for the city to reconsider the application process as it relates to CEQA. Uh, it is only fair that the changes be made going forward and not retroactively. So, the, the, and, and if there is a change in terms of the process, which we already have, um, the committee should be made aware via public notice of such changes and should have the opportunity to make public comment. So we've complied with the process and we've, we've had the approvals from the, the various bodies and we uh, w um, hope that you can um, uphold the original approvals. Thank you. Great, thank you, Mr. Eli. Uh, Mr. Parsons, did you have something to add? Just two quick uh, brief points to make. Uh, one of the commenters uh, inquired as to why this project is categorically exempt. I do have an answer to that, and that is that uh, recall that CEQA is a creature of state creation. It's a state law. And the state, through legislature and then subsequently through regulations, has provided exemptions to that law. And that is in 14 Calco regs, the Cal Code regs 15303. Uh, it's cited in the letter, and I can read it to you. It's actually quite straightforward for a regulation. It says, class three consists of construction and location of limited numbers of new structures. Examples of this exemption include, but are not limited to, A, single family residence or a second dwelling unit in a residential zone. B, a duplex or similar multifamily family structure totaling more than, more than, uh, no more than four dwelling units. Put simply, what's being asked, asked of you this evening is to essentially try to figure out why the person who was going 40 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone did not get a speeding ticket. The law exempts that behavior from any sort of uh, issue, and that's the case here. The law exempts this project from CEQA, and the state has done that. So that, that's the source of the categorical, categorical exemption. Um, one last point I'd just like to briefly make. There's been a lot of discussion of precedent. I'd like to remind the council that does work both ways. And what we have here is a project that is permitted by right. The applicant has every right to construct this project. She has done it in a very sensible and tactful way that's mindful of the community and has in fact reduced the project in light of community concerns. She's been, a, she's been a model candidate, and this is a model project. If this project is not approved and the appeal is uh, granted tonight and is not denied, as we're asking you to do, that effectively sets a precedent of, of effective downzoning. Because if this project does not qualify and go through and, and qualify as this exemption, then no project is going to qualify as this, as this, for this exemption. And that's a functional downzoning. So I ask you to please and urge you to consider Follow the law. Um, you know, we, I understand that this uh, it feels impactful, and, uh, and the changes to the character of the neighborhood uh, feel impactful to appellants. But quite frankly, and, and I do say this with a deep respect and understanding, but those concerns just do not qualify under the law of the state of California as a uh, reason or substantial evidence to uh, find that an exception applies to this except exemption that staff uh, properly concluded applies. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Parsons. Uh, Mr. Boyce, on behalf of Old Town Preservation Association.
on the right way to begin. Um, first of all, let me remind you, uh, OTPA is an organization that is celebrating its 37th year this year. And when we started out, a good portion of Old Town was designated as blighted. And that's the reason the organization started. And through that period of 37 years, we've worked diligently to try to make sure that what we have in Old Town, what we have in Orange, we can keep. We know that there's going to be change, and we're not necessarily opposed to change, but it has to be change that's being looked at by the decision makers as how it affects this National Register District. OTPA put this National Register District together, made the application, and it was accepted by the State of California, and then added to the National Register District. We stand by what we said with regards to uh, the uh, practice of categorical exemptions. I cannot remember the last time that any project of this size or any project that was not considered a big, massive project didn't get passed through categorically exempt. And so we've decided that we need to make a stand on this. That's why we're looking for a consultant or an attorney somebody with the expertise that can stand up here and, and talk, as their uh, individual did. You really have to make a decision. You have to make a decision on whether or not you want to save this district or not. Now, they don't like the idea of uh, cumulative effect. But picture this. If you allow this project to go through, what will that area look like if 10 more projects like this go through? What will the district look like if because of this precedent or other precedents that have been ha handed down in the past cause it to get less and less historic? I think there's value to being the city that has the largest national registered district in the state. It should be a prideful thing. The city of Orange is really happy, I think, at times to kind of pump that up, and, and when people come to visit, they're proud of it. I know they are. But we're getting to a tipping point now, as, as Sue mentioned. We continue to allow project after project after project. And we know that we're under pressure from Chapman University, although they're building their own dorm sites on their own property, it's not fast enough. And they're going to come before you guys, and they're going to ask for an increase in, in their student population pretty soon. So the only way to stop that is for them to take away the profitability of what is probably going to happen in this case. So I really would like you to consider really what you think is important. If you think that the district is important, then I think you need to send this back to the DRC. I don't understand why the DRC can't look at CEQA. What's the point of having CEQA if the DRC is not able to even consider it? I mean, there must be a reason. Maybe you can talk to that. And as far as the, the planning commission goes, which one of those people on your planning commission is your expert on CEQA? I bet you nobody can answer that because there isn't one. So we need to change it. We need to change this problem and as we said in, our, in, my, in my response there, as we said, we don't want to stop this project altogether. We want to have it reviewed properly. 
and we want to have it scaled down if possible. I'm sure that's what those that spoke would like to see. That was not our appeal. Our appeal was on process. But I hope that you'll consider that. I hope you consider the district. Ask yourself whether it's worth saving or not. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boyce. Uh, we'll now close the public hearing. And uh, any council members with any questions? We'll start. Mr. Bilodeau, any questions for staff? Um, yeah, I just have one question, just to clarify. This project, is this, does it require any variances? No, it does not. Okay, thank you. Councilmember Gutierrez, any further questions? I do have a question, um, Anna. In regards to, and again, because I'm not a CEQA expert, but to do an initial study, would that be because you don't find an, uh, an exemption? That's, that's correct. Okay. And then I know you closed the public hearing, but I, I did want to ask Mr. Boyce a question. Is that okay or not? I'm sorry. <laughs> I almost anticipated it. I'll have to reopen the public hearing. Uh, Mr. Boyce, uh, I believe Ms. Gutierrez is going to have a uh, council member. Gutierrez has a question for you. I'm sorry. That's okay. We're all learning, right? Mr. Boyce, I just had a question because we're talking about cumulative impacts. Um, in your belief, um, how would the historic district, because I know this before I didn't understand exactly where OTPA was going with cumulative impacts. Was it going to impact the street? But now I'm understanding you're talking about the district as an uh, entirety, right? So they talked about having a substantial adverse uh, change. Would this, um, and it kind of speaks to both, I think the historical resource and cumulative impact, because if what I read, um, it has to impact um, past, present, and future, uh, is what I read. And so, is this something that you believe has an adverse change to the district as a whole is, is kind of what I want you to speak to so I can get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, keep in mind that we went through a long battle during that 37 years of trying to downzone zone Old Town. At the same time, Santa Ana was doing the same thing because they realized that if you allowed these areas to build out to their underlying zoning, nobody would want to live there. Monrovia was a good example of that. They couldn't, landlords couldn't even get in to collect their rents. It was such a mess. But with regards to this project, what I'm saying is that this is a starting point, if you will, but I believe that CEQA definitely says you need to consider what's happened in the past, what is currently being proposed, and what the potential of build-out might be in the future. And we feel and I think most people that value old time feel that if we just allow unfettered development to go on, then it'll again become a place that nobody wants to live. And we're also under this enormous pressure by the state of California that is slowly taking away local control of what we can do with land use, zoning, and code enforcement. And so this is the thing we see hovering on the horizon. That's why we're turning to CEQA and asking that it be looked at closer. Cumulative <coughs> effect is what's going to happen in the future as well as what has been happening in the past. And, you know, 
the, the planning commission was talking about um, properties that were, um, I can't remember the word they used, but they were properties that don't contribute. Anomalies is the word they use. And uh, I was not in the planning commission, the DRC was talking about anomalies. And they said, if we have an anomaly before us, what we should do is we shouldn't seek to not allow that anomaly to get worse or add to or anything like that. Cumulative effect in my mind, and I think in the, in the sequel, is that we don't want things to get worse. We want to control them and we want to make sure that, that, um, that we are able to save what we have now and sensitively add to it. I don't know whether that answers your question or not. <laughs> Does it affect our historic standing? Does it affect us in any which way? But I know by right that the zoning allows it. I know it's permitted, and that's not necessarily what you all are uh, appealing. But does it affect our uh, standing in historic as a historic district? Well, there are uh, there are examples of historic districts that have lost their designation because of deterioration of their historic status. I can't tell you for sure exactly what would cause that, okay. but it's a possibility out there. Okay. Um, so as far as this one, I think that it gives the opportunity for others to say, hey, they did it over there, I'm going to do it here. And it's going to increase. I don't care what they say about parking. I live at 143 North Pine Street, and on the corner, there is a uh, property that has one large building, a duplex, and two to or one other small building that fronts on Pine Street. And right now the owner has uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 at least Chapman students in that complex. And I can tell you it makes a difference. Parking, noise, parties. Can't get away from it, I don't think, but that's what we're dealing with. Okay, thank you. Uh, Councilmember Gillenhammer? I'm working with um, <clears throat> I just wanted to say I appreciate the efforts of, um, and the preservation efforts and, and the impact that you all are having in OTPA. Old Town is definitely a jewel for the city. Um, and then I also wanted to thank the property owner for your investment in this process and what I believe to be genuine efforts to comply. Um, I feel good with the information presented today. I have no other questions. Uh, Council Member Tavalish, do you have questions for the... No. Okay, I'll close the public hearing again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Council Member Tavalish, go ahead. Well, thank you both for being here. I think uh, Councilman uh, Gillenhammer said it right. I mean, these are tough issues. Um, I'm thinking of the first uh, item, which is zoning. Um, it is R2. We may not like it, but it is. That just goes back to we're way late on getting uh, our general plan renewed and rewritten. Um, so the applicant has every right to ask for what she's asking for. Um, I do want to read something. I was looking it up as, as um, Bob was talking. Uh, by the way, I'm a proud member of OTPA. Love Old Town. <laughs> um, the Design Review Committee, according to our website, just the first sentence, is established to uphold community aesthetics. 
uh, recognizing that the inclusion of a specific aesthetic development standards is impractic impracticable to the very, I can't read it at night, uh, to the variable nature of architectural concepts, et cetera. Um, I'm actually impressed that the applicant got something approved by DRC. <laughs> uh, no offense to our DRC uh, members, but they're a tough crew. So that speaks for itself. I think um, he did a good job there. In terms of the Planning Commission, the Planning Commission is established to make land use decisions in accordance with state law that are consistent with the city's general plan goals and policies as formally adopted by the city council, et cetera, et cetera. We can all read that. Um, you know, Bob's right though, we have a big problem. Every city does because of what is going down in Sacramento and I know I'm preaching to the choir and I preach a lot up here about it. Uh, and I know we're not supposed to get political up here but remember who you're voting for. This was done by people you voted for, all of us. And so when we come up here and say, and we're our next item, power is being taken away from us. I mean, you guys can come and ask for things and we don't have the power to give it to you. She, she the applicant has um, purchased an R2 home. I mean, I don't like it. I don't like that they're doing that. But she has every right to do it. She paid good money for it. She's an architect, I think you said, or design person. I'm sure she wants the best for our city. She has every right to ask for it. We know lots of people are, are doing it. I don't like it either. Councilwoman Gutierrez and I, at least on this council now, <laughs> um, have historical places in our, in our districts. It's going to happen to us, and Mr. Dubuque is right. I'm dealing with them all now, as you guys all know. And... People are asking for us to rezone it from commercial to residential. I'm not going to tell you how we feel about that. But that's why this is so tough. Um, I don't know. I know Mr. Wallace said send it back to DRC so they can re-review. I don't, I don't know if they're going to change their mind. They might. But I, I trust the staff did their job. Um, but you know what? We have to stick to the law. That's all we have. I don't make the laws. Just have to follow them. But what I promise you this with OTPA, Bob, when it comes down to the general plan, when it comes down to you guys needing help with rezoning or whatever it is, I'm there for you. Because I want our city to be great, like it always has been great. And I, this is hard. You know, I know we all believe in property rights. The applicant has every right to do what she's doing. I don't think any of us can say that, that she doesn't. But how am I going to go to the mall people and tell them, well, you know, we can rezone anything now? It's very tough. Um, but I really want to thank the OTPA folks um, and my colleagues um, for everything you do for our city. The reason Old Town, I mean, John and I grew up here, and Anna, I remember how Old Town used to be. <laughs> it's better because of you. It is what it is right now because of you. 
and I will always support OTPA. That's why this is hard. Where am I supposed to go with this? I don't know, but uh, Councilman Dimitri, I'm gonna I'll turn it back to you, but I, I just wanna say, when you guys go home tonight, I want you to look up who are your legislators are and call them on it. Because this is what's not only just ruining Orange, it's ruining every city in this state. The CEQA stuff, um, I applaud you uh, from Rutan Tucker. I don't know how you live with this stuff every day reading it. Um, that's, that's some tough reads, man. <laughs> um, but thank you for being here and, and explaining it to us, um, non-attorneys. Um, I'm going to just turn it back to you because I'm, I'm still pondering all this, uh, Councilman Dimitri, but I just want to thank everybody and understand that this is a really hard issue. Thank you, uh, Councilmember Tavares. A real quick question for the uh, city attorney. Uh, I'm going to ask a couple quick questions. Um, it was brought up a number of times that uh, Chapman students will be living at the uh, residence. Are we allowed uh, to consider uh, who would be the potential occupants uh, into a decision-making process? No, no, that's okay. yeah, that can't and, be part of your consideration. Thank you. And again, um, can you give us? I know Council Member Tavares gave us a quick overview of DRC, um, but does DRC? Can you give us a, a you know a, a, your perspective on what their roles and responsibilities are towards CEQA uh, review? Well, there's there's two, it, and it came up at DRC, and so uh, we we explained. Uh, for one thing, in our code, there's a chart that says reviewing bodies and types of decisions, environmental skips right over DRC. So our code specifically omits them from the environmental review process. And second, uh, the name, Design Review Committee, uh, and all of the points that are listed in the OMC that Council Member Tavalaris mentioned, where it has to do with there, there's going to be an architect and a landscape and a historian and, um, uh, or, excuse me, a historical uh, expert and they review aesthetics. So really our code and, and all the responsibilities that are in our code limit the DRC to design. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ms. Pahushak, in reviewing the plans, um, there is no proposed on-street parking, correct? All right, there actually, there, there can't be. It's The street's too narrow, am I correct? Well, the project itself proposes uh, one car garage and a, a one car open parking space, which complies with the parking requirement and the code for a duplex. All right, and if, uh, and there is no project next door, correct? Correct, there was a project proposed that was denied by the DRC, so there, we don't, we do not have. And that's the northern property, correct? It's 515 South Grand. Is there any proposed projects at the, south, the uh, southern property that would have any type of impact? Adjacent to this? Right, the south. Uh, no. No, okay. And um, real quickly, um, how, do you, how do you as a staff member go about determining a CEQA exemption um, in, your, in your duties when you're reviewing these projects? Is, is it, uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, are you, are you, are you just flipping the coin or uh, is there a, a methodology to um, how you come up with your conclusion? Well, 
I'll use my prop. <laughs> CEQA guidelines has very specific criteria for the types of projects that are eligible for exemptions. And then in the case of a property in the historic district, we do, again, take a look at does the project design comply with the Old Town Design Standards and also the Secretary of Interior Standards. Those are really the factors that come into play when we're um, determining whether or not to follow the path of an exemption in a historic district. All right, thank you. And colleagues, uh, any further comments or questions for staff? Ms. Gutierrez, Councilman Mayor uh, Gutierrez. <laughs> thank you. Uh, just a comment. I just, Anna, staff, my goodness, thank you so much for all the hard work you do. And I know for a fact this was something you inherited to do. And so, and as I'm learning, CEQA is very difficult. So I applaud you for all the hard work that you do and and um, and know that that you try to do the best <clears throat> that you can and I appreciate that and I appreciate the owner for um, changing things whatever it was that she needed to do and it seems like you're really trying to uh, do what's best for our community and uphold our old town standards as well and and I applaud the neighbors for being here speaking on the behalf of their of their neighborhood and I also applaud OTPA for um, speaking up um, in regards to this project and process. And, and I'm like Councilmember Tavalaris at, at very much a, at a pondering state. It's very difficult for me to, uh, <clears throat> to really decide this issue because it's a difficult issue. Um, because as she noted, I have a historic district in my district as well. Mr. Gillinghammer has one as well. And um, not to say that we didn't follow process, but it's, it, um, I see both sides, you know, and the property owner by right has, has, a, has by right permitted to build. It's R2 zone. So I see both sides and it makes it very difficult. Um, but yeah, OTPA, you are, are right in that when do we when do we say no? So it's it's difficult, and I'm having a very difficult time. That's why I've been asking questions to clarify, to try to understand, and and know that this is not an easy decision. This is I'm taking it all in, and I and I appreciate you all being here. Um, know that by no means is this taking li taken lightly at all. So thank you, staff, and thank you, residents, and thank you, OTPA, and thank you as well. I appreciate it, and. That's my comments right now. I'm going to listen to the rest of my colleagues, and, and hopefully we can come to some kind of decision. Sure. Thank you. Councilmember Uh Thank you. And I want to echo the comments of my colleagues. Uh, Rob, I want to thank you for bringing this up. Um, I want to thank the applicant for putting together what I think is a thoughtful proposal. Um, this is a one-story residence. Uh, the floor area ratio is only 0.3 on the lot, which is um, basically on the, the lowest end of the uh, adjacent structures on that street. Um, I do recall I was on the council eight years ago when we redid the general plan and we did downzone portions of Old Town. We got a lot of input on that. But the Nutwood track did not get downzoned. And as I recall, it's because we received a lot of pushback. Mm -hmm. Many of the residents that have these R2 lots said, no, I don't want to get downzoned. That this is my 
this is my retirement. This is, you know, this is part of my portfolio. And, uh, and I said then, as I say now, if, if you want to come down here and have us downzone your property, I'm all ears. But I don't think we're going to have a long line of people that are going to voluntarily do that. Um, um, and unfortunately, I, I do think that this falls within the Class 3 SECO exemption. I believe that the staff got it right. And I have not heard any uh, substantial evidence tonight that would refute that. So with that, I'd like to proffer a motion that we deny the appeal and the direct staff to come back with a resolution with the appropriate findings to that effect. And I would just, just want to clarify because we're deny, denying the appeal will leave the approval standing, just for everybody's clarification. Correct. <laughs> it will leave the uh, approval standing. All right, we have a motion, we have a second. Um, for sake of discussion, um, Madam Attorney, um, if we deny, uh, could, there, could there be a motion made? Um, you know, let's see, what, what, I'm trying to figure out the best way to say it. If there's a denial, um, actually, it wouldn't work on a denial. Okay, thank you. Disregard. Okay, we have a motion and a second. Please vote. Councilmember Dimitriuk, who was the second? I believe it was Mr. Gillenhammer. Okay, thank you. Don't touch anything. There we go. Please vote. The law sucks. Okay, with that, we have uh, four in favor of denial, one in opposition. Um, the denial uh, goes forward. We'll have a resolution at our next council meeting uh, affirming that. I'd like to ask Cal uh, Mayor uh, Dan Slater and Mayor Pro Tem uh, Barrios to come back to the dais. Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Dimitri, for conducting that hearing. <clears throat> so we have one item left on the agenda. It's item 9.2. Thank you for hanging in there for that. <clears throat> item 9.2 is continued public hearing to consider general plan amendment number 2022-0001, City of Orange 2021 through 29, housing element update and finding of CEQA exemption. This is continued from our February 10th 2023 meeting. <clears throat> I'll begin by asking um, if any council members had any questions or wanted any further information from staff. We've already had a report. Uh, does anyone have such a desire? Hearing none, I will open the public hearing. And uh, again, as uh, we did before, the person uh, next will uh, please come up to the front row. Um, first uh, speaker is Bob Pack, followed by Sister Sue Danning. <clears throat> Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council, 
members and staff. I know it's been a long night for you, so thank you for all you do for the community. You do make tough decisions. Um, my name is, like I said, Bob Pack, and I'm the president of Stonefield Development and the project manager for Chapman Yorba 8. As many of you know, Chapman Yorba 8 owns a eight-acre vacant site adjacent to the Chapman Global Medical Center. <clears throat> In 2020, we filed applications to develop the property with a mixed-use senior apartment project <clears throat> consisting of 158 apartments and a self-storage facility. And 10% of the apartments will be set aside for lower-income senior households. Those applications are now being processed by your staff. We are here tonight because we believe the property should be added to the inventory of sites that are available and suitable for residential development in the city's housing element, and we are requesting that you do so. We wrote staff last November to formalize this request, and we provided a copy of our November request to the council last week for your continued meeting from last Friday. Of course, we understand the inclusion of our site in the housing element inventory does not mean the city will approve our project. However, the site should be in the inventory because it's not, on, it's not only vacant, available, and suitable, but it's actually proposed for housing. If approved, the senior project would meet 6%, excuse me, 4% of the city's RENA needs. It will also be built well before the 2029, which is the outside date of the planning period for the housing element. We hope the city's omission of this vacant site from the housing element is a mere oversight, but for whatever the reason, reason, we are asking that the city council correct the oversight by adding the site to the housing element inventory. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Um, next, Sister Sue Danning, followed by Bonnie Robinson. <clears throat> Good evening, Mayor Slater and council members. My name is Sister Sue Dunning, and I serve on the General Council of the Sisters of St. Joseph of Orange. We recently celebrated our 100th anniversary here in the city of Orange. And I want to thank you, all the leaders and staff of the city, for the warm partnership with our congregation throughout the years, and most notably for the support recently to transform our mother house on 480 South Batavia building into 50 units of affordable housing for some of the most vulnerable people in our community of Orange. We hope to see you at that dedication, which we hope will happen sometime in 2024 with all of the construction delays that happen and the funding that um, took place and the refunding that took place. So we thank you for your support with that. One of our guiding principles is to act on behalf of justice and to ensure food, clothing, shelter, health care are adequate, accessible, decent, and affordable. The sixth cycle of how the housing element provides an opportunity for the city to help make shelter more affordable. It's critical that policies are put into the housing element that will produce affordable housing, particularly at the very low and extremely <coughs> low income levels. I'm concerned that the housing element being considered 
for approval this evening does not have those policies that are needed to make an impact on the pressing need to provide decent affordable housing. For instance, including an inclu inclusionary housing ordinance with 15% requirement of affordable housing at extremely low, very low, or low income categories. And what was just mentioned by Mr. Pack before I came up, there's where one, I think he said 10% would be in that level. We also need programs to increase affordable housing for families at low, extremely low incomes and for unhoused seniors at those same levels of income. So I sure hope that you will consider these policies for the future. Maybe they will not be included this evening on the vote, but they can be included at any time within the um, cycle of the eight years. So I appreciate your attention, and I hope that you will consider these suggestions. Thank you. Thank you, Sister. Bonnie Robinson. <clears throat> Good evening, Mayor Slater and City Council members. I welcome the opportunity to speak in regards to the adoption of the 2021 to 2029 general plan housing element. I spoke in February 2022 regarding the initial draft and its adoption by the city. At that time, the plan was generally substantive in meeting housing and community development requirements and its identification of appropriate sites, not sites that are zoned open space or designated open space, for affordable and moderate priced housing. However, some of the language was vague as to how the plan was to be implemented in such a way that at least some of those sites would likely be developed into affordable housing. I am pleased that there is more specificity in the language and the housing element um, planning, such as identify and pursue potential financing sources, as well as identify and implement regulatory incentives. The city will outreach to property owners whose deed restriction expires within the next three years to discuss an agreement to maintain the affordability of the units, seek grants and other funding mechanisms for maintenance of existing neighborhoods, proactively building relationships with nonprofits to build affordable housing on the identified planned sites. And those sites are sites that are a zone mixed use, already zone mixed use, and are appropriate for development. I would like to commend our city planner, Chad Ortlieb, and consultants Nick Chen and Inez Gamiche for their work on the housing element. I'm in favor of adoption of the 2021 to 2029 housing element plan. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all of you for coming out and having an interest in uh, this important topic for the city of Orange. Uh, with that, I'm going to close the public hearing and bring it back to the city council for discussion and action. And uh, uh, Councilmember Dimitru. Sure, I just, <clears throat> dang it. I just had a quick question, uh, a couple quick questions for staff. Um, first of all, how, what was the uh, what was the rationale behind picking some of the properties? Um, looking through the list uh, that was provided to the state, um, for instance, I, I just pulled a couple out real quick. But 1900 West Catella, which is the sheriff's training center, um, the uh, the Eris Hotel on West Chapman, and then of course you guys want to whack my Wendy's. Um, <laughs> the the only place I can get, get something to eat tonight, as a matter of fact. But uh, it it doesn't make sense to me some of the the locations that are being picked, um, and then, then you have, in going back to Mr. Pack's comments, um, you know, it's not binding to the city, uh, 
to list a proposal that's been in place or, or working its way through the system uh, for a couple of years, but that's not listed. So can you get help me get to where I understand how you're picking properties, um, or do we just are we driving around the city going, hey, this looks good and this doesn't? Because I also didn't spot the Motel Six that uh, left the Denny the Motel Six Denny site in the report, and I may have missed it as an opportunity for uh, development while it's sitting as a completely giant vacant lot, or the old or the you know the Woody site on West Chapman uh, as a that's also a vacant site, or the Union Halls, which could be converted or the feed store. There's hundreds of properties that would make better sense than some of the ones that were picked. So I, I, I just have to know how you got there. So our starting point for site selection uh, was looking at property that did not need to be rezoned. I think a lot of cities uh, have been in a situation where they had to rezone property. Orange has been in a fortunate situation where we have property that has the zoning in place that allows housing development and that's perhaps underutilized property that over the lifetime of the housing element, it may be possible that change would occur either through infill on surface parking lots or um, you know, there may be wholesale redevelopment of, a, of an entire site. And so many of the sites that were included in this particular housing element were sites that we had identified in our previous current housing element um, and um, you know some of the sites in our in our current housing element did experience housing development you know town the town and country area is one example um, so so that was the fundamental the, starting point so with the with the sheriff's facility at 1900 West uh, Catella it's probably never going to be an opportunity to develop that into housing so how do we justify telling the state that we want this to be housing when I, I think in all common sense is it's never going to be available for it? Well, again, um, because the site is in a certain state today, there's the potential that eight years down the road, there's a different um, thinking about that property on the part of the owner okay. and it's it's a potential potential site and there there are a number of sites that are identified so that we have some flexibility built into where housing does occur it doesn't bind every single site to be developed with housing it's again to sort of places that have opportunity for housing development and i didn't see it listed as a potential property but since the state has decided so much for us, uh, why, why didn't we list the Caltrans property as a potential site for affordable housing? That site, too, doesn't have the zoning in place. So, um, Well, that's tough. Okay. Um, and getting back to uh, the, uh, uh, Mr. Pack's comments, um, what if we were to amend the housing element to include that? What would that cause as a overall issue? I mean, it, to me, it really just doesn't make sense whether uh, whether it's approved or not approved. It's in a pending state as potential uh, potential housing um, for uh, seniors. Um, it's not binding to us. 
that it's in, or is it binding to us if it's in the housing element? Well, we don't want to we don't want to get reach a foregone conclusion that you know jump the gun and assume that the property is going to be rezoned and a new general plan designation. So just because of site, we have we happen to have sites around the city that we hadn't anticipated residential development in the last housing element cycle where housing did come forward, um, and so and the and it's kind of a bonus on top of the sites that we've identified. So in this case. We don't want to presuppose what's going to happen with that application. And um, there's an environmental review process and a more complex uh, set of steps that go along with potential development on that site. So and simply it's not zoned correctly. Correct. All right. Councilman, if, if I may real quick, because uh, in the last few weeks dealing with the housing element, I, I think uh, to your point, um, you're correct. Um, the housing element for us to identify these locations, we go out and we look for locations that are currently zoned for and that could have the potential. And, and I think that's the key word that, that the state is looking for. So if it, however it may be currently, as in the sheriff's range or, or another location, um, could it conceivably someday, zoned as it is today, be housing? And I think that's the criteria we're looking for. Excuse me, not looking for, but looking at. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Singh. Thank you, Mayor. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm seeing uh, no other council member. Oh, council member Tavares. I'm sorry. Just um, the classical academy. Um, I heard from the owners that they don't want to be included in the housing element. Can you explain why they are? Uh, yes. At the time, we well, first of all, that site is zoned for residential development. Oh. And at the time we were identifying sites, it was uh, prior to the Classical Academy occupying that property. And we had a number of, kind of continual contacts from residential developers interested in that site. The owners now are investing a lot of money into that school. Uh, should we keep it on, in the housing element? I mean, it seems well, to me I, like it's gonna be a school for, for a while. <laughs> And what I would say is this, <laughs> because the state has been kind of a difficult dance partner getting here, <laughs> uh, again, just because it's identified doesn't mean housing will be built there. And we do have an opportunity, um, policy action 2A references, as time goes on, we'll revisit the sites and make adjustments um, as appropriate to the eligible sites. Okay, Council Member Billado. Uh, thank you. Um, one thing I'm not going to do is walk out of here tonight without an approved housing element. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, Councilwoman Tavalaris uh, actually just asked my question. So, we couldn't take the classical, classical academy out of the housing element right now without sort of uh, delaying this process. Is that correct? Because we, we would have to make some worms. substantial changes to the housing element and the numbers and things like that, correct? Correct. Okay, that's all I need to know. Thank you for your answer. Good question. Councilmember Dimitri. I'm just going to ask one more. I, I, I can't, I'm still trying to really wrap my head around this, how we 
pick and choose properties, but did we reach out to uh, OUSD because one of their properties you've, one of the properties listed as a potential development is uh, the Santiago Charter Junior High School, uh, the entire facility. So I'm very curious if the school district happened to weigh in and say, well, we're not interested in that. And that was the uh, <clears throat> property at uh, 515, I believe that was uh, the, fi the 515 North Santiago Boulevard. Oh, well, why are they addressing it as the junior high? Is it the adjacent property, uh, Ms. Pahoshak, or is it the junior high itself? I don't believe it's the full it's school, the correct? It's, it's the there's a lot that's adjacent to it. Yeah, there's a vacant it, lot. <laughs> Got it from four people. In, in that case, it's a portion of the site. And again, at the time we were identifying sites, we had some ongoing contact with housing developers. Okay, um, I think uh, we're good. So there's a motion on the floor to adopt resolution number 11431, a resolution of the City Council of the City of Orange approving general plan amendment number 2022-0001, adopting the City <coughs> of Orange 2021 through 29 general plan housing element. There's a motion and a second. Any further discussion? I'll ask for the vote. Please vote. <clears throat> that is unanimous. So we are hereby going to adjourn. And uh, next month, we are beginning uh, two council meetings. So our first one will be on March 14th, 2023 at 6 p.m. in the council chamber with closed session beginning at 5 p.m. if necessary. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs>